For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts. Unfortunately, more deaths on our roads. The Star's front page, all of the red tops have a three dead in road smash horror, three killed in new road horror. It says this morning, sun and to the mirror, man, woman and child killed in a horror smash, a single vehicle accident only days after the leaving certificate tragedy claimed four other lives, of course, in the same county. Barry Roach's Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times. I want to go straight to him, come back to other newspaper stories uh, because he is uh, covering it and is in uh, the Tipperary area, I believe, and he joins me by phone. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you doing? Uh, thank you. I know there's been uh, an update since newspapers went to print. What do we know now? Uh, we know that the deceased are all members of the one family. Uh, we understand that uh, last night at about 10 to 9, uh, a car was travelling uh, on a back road near uh, Cashel. Just for listeners, uh, when you're coming from Cork, uh, as you're aware, or listeners are aware, there's um, a Circle K and a McDonald's on the left-hand side there outside Cashel. There is. Come back about a kilometre or so, there's another slip road off that brings you into Cashel before you go via, you don't go by the the, um, the the Supermax. And it's that slip road that they were travelling down. Talking to people locally, uh, they explained it to me. Uh, people may remember Mo- or may know Mother, Hu- Mother Hubbard's yeah. on the old road. You take a left there and it brings you back down and it was on that road, which is called Windmill Road. About 10 to 9, cars seems to have gone out of control and hit a wall. Emergency services were quickly on the scene, paramedics, firefighters, guardy, and it was evident very early on to them that there were going to be fatalities. It's transpired that the two rear seat passengers in the car, a man and woman in their 40s, who are the grandparents of a child in the car, they were pronounced dead at the scene. The child, a three-year-old little boy, paramedics worked on him uh, to try and stabilise him at the scene, but tragically he passed away as well, and all three bodies were removed initially to uh, Tipperary University Hospital, Clonmel. The grandparents' bodies have since been transferred to University Hospital Wardford post-mortem and I would expect that the body of the little boy will be brought down to Wardford as well for post-mortem. The driver of the car, who's the child's father, and the front seat passenger, who's the child's mother, they were taken by ambulance to Tipperary uh, University Hospital in Clonmel. The father is quite critical. The mother, serious, but not as bad. So, um, obviously, they underwent emergency surgery last night, but my understanding is the father is critical there in hospital today. So, a terrible tragedy. Uh, for Tipperary and as you say coming just four or five days after the tragedy in Clanmel it just makes you wonder how much grief or how much tragedy how much heartbreak can one county or one community take. I, I, I can't comprehend it that there yeah it's it, just, uh, it's just when I got a call last night I sort of said not and you know there's been so much in the last week or so here in Cork obviously as well with Ironman and then the young Latin passage Jack yeah. Just, yeah yeah and I was at the cover of that funeral there's just been so much of it and someone else said to me go back to the Polish woman down in um Near Ballycotton earlier in the summer, like this one, an awful, awful, awful uh, tragedy. There there clearly will be an investigation, um, but last last evening it was uh, conditions were okay, weren't they? Or is it a very bad road? Obviously, trying to get um, details last night was difficult, but certainly the impression that was coming for coming out of cash last night was that unlike the Clonmel situation where there was been a horrendous downpour moments before and then water or bad weather was a factor, road conditions was a factor, were a factor. Weather conditions last night seemed to be okay. Uh, from what the early indications are the road has been closed off obviously Gardy have, have closed it off and a forensic crash investigator uh, diversions are put in place and forensic crash investigator is going to examine the scene today and the vehicle obviously be examined as well but Gardy have appeal for witnesses anybody who travelled the road uh, Windmill Road in Knockbologue 
in Cashel. It's about two and a half kilometres from Central Town, I, I gather. Uh, they've appealed for witnesses to anyone who travelled the road between half eight, quarter, past nine, yeah. and anyway, dash cam footage. An incident room has been set up in uh, Caregarda Station, and they've appealed to anyone who has information to contact them there. And the number there, if I can find this. Is that the 052 number? Yeah, there's also Clonmel, which is the district headquarters. Um, hang on, I'll just scroll down here. And the care number is. Uh, bear with me a second. I have it here. Do you want it? 0526177640. It's in your copy. Yeah, that sounds right. That yes. sounds right. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Okay. Um, and obviously, it, this is happening at a time when Clonmel is preparing for three, well, four funerals. Sorry. There's one tomorrow in Kilcash of one of the girls who was killed, Nikki Murphy. Then Friday, they have the double funeral of Luke and Grace um, McSweeney. And then on Saturday, um, there's Zoe Coffey's funeral also in Clonmel. So it's just a huge, huge burden of grief that's just come down on South Tipperary in the last week. You know, it's just... Um, it's it's, it's, it's hard to find words. And I was talking to the mayor of Clon- of Cashel, sorry, my apologies, come through Declan Burgess this morning. And he said, you know, um, it's definitely stating use of the community here in Cashel. It's just awful, particularly coming just days after the terrible tragedy in our neighbouring town of Clonmel on Friday night when four young people died. We've been struck with another brow now, he said. It's hard to comprehend. People are just shocked and numbed at the loss of three lives. But it's an ongoing situation with two others still quite critical in Tipperary Hospital critical, yeah. in Clonmel. So we're trying to come to terms with the enormity of it all. So, you know, people, and I have no doubt the community will rally around as people do but it's just leaves you speechless you know. right. Barry thanks for the update tragic tragic news thank you for that Barry Road Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times from Cashel this morning two grandparents and a little three year old infant and mam and dad of the infant critical it's awfully awfully sad you'd be kind of lost for words wouldn't you certainly in the uh, aftermath of what we thought was as bad as it can get and that was awful too the, this, the, this being the second multiple fatality in County Tipperary inside, in a week, inside of a week just Barry Roach writes in the Times this morning the three teenage leaving such students and the 24 year old man uh, not too far from there actually both crashes both in the general Cashel area in fact one of the newspapers this morning uh, picks up on that first crash that led to the loss of four lives and it has to do uh, with people sharing sick crash videos and at one stage uh, we were talking a few days ago about the fact that there was a drone over the first crash site uh, and I mean, it won't be right sicko to be uh, you know, going and filming this whether it's with a drone or passing with a mobile phone and then sharing it on um, social media I fail to understand the logic behind it um, we want to have a fairly sick mind. Uh, is that all for clicks and likes or what? Far from it. Front page of the Echo this morning talks about um, the um, funeral of Jack O'Sullivan from Fires Walk, a 14-year-old who died after getting into difficulties with uh, while well, swimming with friends in Passage West. It's the front page making the Echo this morning um, because he was such a lovable rogue. He was a people person, uh, was Jack. And his mam, Yvonne, actually told some very beautiful uh, and personal stories about him yesterday at the funeral. She said, uh, Jack, one of them was, she said, that Jack never left the house without a comb in his pocket. He insisted that it was something that everybody did. And he would scoff at suggestions that it was the habit of an old man uh, to carry a comb in his pocket. Yvonne said that Jack loved the style and he doused himself in fancy sprays. And this often left the family choking with laughter. She said when Jack was born, they were overjoyed as a family as his birth followed that of his three older sisters. And she said, I wouldn't believe it, that he was a boy. I asked the doctors, are you sure? 
about 20 times. Um, Mum speaking of her beautiful little man, her beautiful son, her 14-year-old boy who drowned in Passage West. Front page story making this morning's uh, echo. Indeed, many of the papers this morning, all of the red tops and the echo also talk about a a courageous little man uh, who got a kidney transplant from his dad. Uh, Five-year-old Cork kidney recipient Jack Uh, makes an emotional half-mile journey to Mallow Community National School. Uh, Off he goes with his older sister, Ellie, his dad, Michael, and his mother, Jessica. He's got a brand-new kidney, and he looks hale and hearty and fit as a fiddle. And all of the papers talk of it. Um, It is the kind of thing you would do as a parent, though, isn't it? You wouldn't even think twice about it. Dad, who gave his son a kidney, so proud to walk him to school. That is just a beautiful story. And considering the other tragedies we've been talking about this morning... It does show the fragility of life, doesn't it? Now, uh, the Before Five story continues to um, gain momentum uh, because those involved in it, whether it's parents or indeed staff or local reps, are saying that they will fight to the end um, to prevent the closure of it. And there was about 200 people gathered outside the centre in Churchfield at lunchtime yesterday showing solid- solidarity. And I will come back to that story uh, throughout the course of the morning. The, the chaos with regards to air traffic control and all of the people that were up in a heap trying to get from A to B and what have you, that makes many of the papers this morning, including the fact that Michael O'Leary is like an absolute demon on behalf of his passengers. Um, that this chaos could be allowed to happen. That in this day and age, Age, it's unacceptable. The disruption could be caused like this with no backup plan, says he. Do you know we've been talking an awful lot about Angarda Shikona? It was about tattoos, it was about Garda recruits or lack of them. And I was mentioning a few weeks ago that it was insane to have an age limit of 35 for joining Angarda Shikona. Uh, thankfully, somebody is, is, is thinking with a logical head on their shoulders, and hopefully they'll do the same with with tattoos, but the age limit of 35 for joining the guards will be significantly increased. It's a story making the front of the independent. So the new age ceiling could be upwards of between 45 and 50 years of age. And why not? I mean, the 35-year-old rule, rule is so old and of a different age. I mean, an awful lot of people in their 40s or 50s or indeed 60s are a heck of a lot, heck of a lot fitter uh, than they were, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And there's a lot of stories making the papers, actually, with regards to health and fitness, and, and some of them of an older age. Like I see in this morning's uh, Irish Times that... Um, well, let me just deal with this one first. There's a story making the UK Times saying that if you keep your weight steady, right, so it's not ballooning all over the place, up and down and up and down, you've got a steady weight and you can maintain that into your 60s, there's a much better chance that you will actually live to 100. Assuming, that is, that you're having a happy life and you want to live to 100. And then there's the story of a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of uh, Mattia Allen Smith, who has made history and into the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest woman to ever finish a marathon. And she did, da- she did it down below in Honolulu in Hawaii at the age of 92 years and 194 days. So in all money, that's 92 and a half. And she finished it. And if you see the photograph of her with a medal, she looks like a 52-year-old, not to mention being actually a 92-year-old grandmother. And they're saying, actually, um, when you look at the sexes, say if relationships break down, and there's a chance that relationships, more so now than ever, particularly after COVID, are breaking down in older people, where they're just saying, sod that, I'm off. So if you look at people in their 60s, the grey resilience of 60-pluses, men in their 60s, apparently, get over a broken heart much faster than women in their 60s apparently and men in their 60s are a lot more inclined apparently 
Chelsea uh, to get married again whatever you're having yourself meanwhile back to a younger generation although I suppose it's fair to say that Electric Picnic attracts people of all different ages and I can see why I was going through the the lineup at Electric Picnic yesterday afternoon my god there are like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acts but uh, there is a warning in this morning's examiner from Angarda Shikona and the HSC that there is high strength cocaine and they're afraid that it will flood the festival with awful and possibly tragic consequences unfortunately all too often festivals go hand in hand with alcohol and indeed a myriad of different drinks uh, sorry different drugs uh, a lot of the papers talk this morning about influencers um, uh, like for instance one of them has to do with the RTE stars they're going to be banned now from shooting promos on the Montreux Montrose campus and again it resurrects the photographs of uh, of Darren Garrahy with her Instagram porridge inside in the on-air studio and they also hone in uh, not just on that one but also on Lottie Ryan who um, used the RT car park uh, to advertise the Toyota motor car that she was given um, at the time I know that some of the female broadcasters got very annoyed about that and I, probably rightly so because they said well while Lottie and Darren were being hung up as poster women with regards to influencers and deals and, and extra money. Everybody at the same time while criticising them was high-fiving um, Marty Morrissey and they found that that was quite unfair. Um, but at the same time, apparently, there's an awful lot more teacher influencers now. These are teachers in the classroom who have um, fairly substantial social media followings. And the teachers are accepting many payments to promote brands and to film content in school buildings. I don't know what kind of brands they're filming, but, you know, if you've got an awful lot of people following you, uh, you can get um, fairly handy dosh just to promote products on your, say, for your Instagram or even on TikTok or, or things like that. So now the minister is weighing in. So we got the education minister weighing in in one area, as in teacher influencers, and, of course, they're trying to knock it on the head within RTE as well. They actually want to kind of a, a register of interest within RTE where many of the staff would have to register and tell and fess up to everything that they earn outside of RTE. And that makes it... I'm quite curious as to why, if they're paying tax on everything they're earning outside of their normal working day. But what do you know? Um, Boss Aaron then uh, are back in hot water again, and I guarantee you, because I've seen emails and texts come in already from parents who don't have school places, even though they have paid for the school ticket and a lot of them paid back in June but Bus Aaron finds they don't have enough bus, buses and they don't have enough drivers but they're promising uh, and they're scrambling and working tirelessly to find extra buses and drivers for many, many families who have paid up and everything but they don't have a place for their child. Undoubtedly, you guys will be texting me on that one so text 0868104106. The papers also talk of a lot of issues regarding sport. Vera Paws, Pau's uh, departure from the Ireland job is in the papers this morning. She got the heave-ho. There was a six-hour summit last night. Some are saying the players have too much power. I don't know anything about that, except that um, after the World Cup and the division between her and the actual playing squad, that her future was not tenable. Um, In other news this morning, and I know I spoke of health-related matters, and I know there was a lot of grief, um, certainly from the farmers, uh, earlier in this week when this um, advice came out to eat 
less red meat and eat more vegetables. Um, if you're a farmer and you heard something like that, you'd be like a demon because it could um, certainly affect your income uh, and uh, do irreparable damage to your farm. But they're also talking about people who eat all of the wrong foods. And this is based on a figure in the Times this morning that says in the rotunda, 39% of deliveries now of babies are by cesarean section. So this is an all-time high now, the nearly 40% of births are cesarean section. Uh, but it's interesting to see that the master of the hospital has said that the, there is a direct correl- correlation or direct connection between the increased rates in cesarean sections and the increased rates of obesity in the general population. He's saying that patients who are obese are more likely to have medical complications, um, for example, gestational diabetes, I don't think you'd call a pregnant mother a patient. Uh, But anyway, babies of mothers who have gestational diabetes, the babies tend to be too big. Um, If mammy's too big, babies are too big, and they won't fit through the pelvis. And that's the reason why they're saying there's been uh, a rapid increase in the amount of caesarean uh, sections in um, the uh, country. Uh, A lot of the papers then talk of, um, you know, if if, if you think that... um, you can have beer goggles. This is not a fact. Beer goggles, as in the more you drink, the more attractive people become. A lot of the time it could be, if you're into the same sex, it would be the same sex. If, it was, if you're, if you're um, heterosexual, it could be, say, for instance, the opposite sex. But beer goggles don't exist. They've, they've said this theory is, is bunkum. Scientists who had maybe very little to do took a look at this and said that appear, apparently drinking alcohol does not make others appear better looking. All it gives you is Dutch courage. Maybe Dutch gold courage. So it makes you more inclined to want to ad- to maybe want to approach or strike up a conversation with somebody that you fancy. But the drink doesn't make them look any better. Um, mind you, there's a story regarding drink in the papers also where a Dublin pub has said that um, they're going to keep the price of Guinness at a five or a pint, but only for those who pay with cash. Oh, I think it's great to hear stories like that because it's just a story where they're actually encouraging people to spend cash. So that can't be too bad. But apparently we're working less and we're earning more, according to the latest CSO statistics that are out. Working less and earning more. You couldn't argue with that. And the papers also talk about... This one is the last one I'm going to do for now. I've got a lot more to do across the morning. But if you've got a dog and you like to play with the dog, some days it's people throwing a stick. Others, it's throwing a ball. Um, And that's all very well if you're throwing a stick. But not so good if it's a tennis ball. Because apparently there is a doctor who is now saying, and she's got over 2 million followers on social media, apparently, uh, the doc. And put up a popular video on TikTok recently saying that tennis balls are deadly when it comes to dogs. And you've got to ask yourself why. Um, Apparently the surface of the tennis ball becomes rough while being thrown about in a game of fetch um, and it becomes coated with saliva dirt and sand and the tennis ball ends up like sandpaper and that can damage the dog's mouth and that can lead to dumb, gum disease and God knows what happens after that so if it is a ball that you're throwing uh, make sure that it isn't a tennis ball by all accounts I suppose maybe a slitter would be a better alternative Talk to Neil Prenderville now 0818 104 106 
Cork's Red FM. Pick up the phone on 0818 um, and we'll get it into new business this morning. Also pick up on calls and texts from yesterday. It was quite a busy day. Can I just do one thing, though, before time gets away from me? Because this is important. It was a Monday. It was July the 24th. And that was the date when there was a group from Cork City Council, including Anne Doherty, went along to visit residents in Noonan's Road. At the same time that she was there, uh, Anne Doherty actually apologised to council tenants living there. It's worth remem- remembering that just like any other landlord, Cork City Council are tenants and they provide um, residents with tenants' handbooks. And the tenants' handbooks will, will tell the residents what they can and can't do and how they behave and the things that they, you know, they can do with regards to their premises. But it also says an awful lot about the responsibility as landlords. Um, and as landlords, within that handbook, it states that the likes of vermin, like rats and mice, and getting rid of them and keeping them away from rented property is the responsibility of the tenant. And that tenant of Cork, of course, is Cork City Council. Now, I was also talking earlier, it may have been about a week ago, where this is not anything exclusive to Southside tenants in Noonan's Road because on the north side of the city, and I visited over the years different areas of the north side of the city that also are suffering with rat and mice infestation, crumbling concrete, um, dampness and mould and issues like that. So what does that tell you about Cork City Council as tenants? Um, they certainly to put it mildly and politely, have been found quite lacking. Now, when we were talking about this a month ago, I chatted with different residents, and indeed, uh, Kevin did a walkabout up there at the same time that the chief executive was there. Sarah Murphy and her daughter Amelia spoke to him about their conditions when he accompanied the chief exec on the walkabout. So this is just a short reminder. Me and my sister what we do any time a bus comes or a car, we run inside. Because you're so embarrassed by your house. My sister made up the game. I saw a dead mouse in my bedroom. Up here now, to the top, there's three, two dead rats up there now on the road. And I had to sleep on the couch last night. And why is that? Because there was mice in my room. And is that your your daughter, Linda? No, that's Sarah. That's your daughter, Sarah. And, and, she, ha- and she has a five-week-old baby. Yeah. Well, how do you feel hearing her telling, you know, like, she I shouldn't be... I felt no, like, she was up and out this morning when I got up um, to feed the baby at quarter five, like, because there was mice running around her bedroom. It's grand new because she hasn't got school, but when it's a school morning, yeah. do you know, it's crazy. But sure, I mean, even, and you, everyone's trying their best to try and make the best life that they can, but then when you look, it must make you so upset to see it that. It's desperate. It's desperate. It's not, it's just not fair, like, so hopefully now by this today there'll be something done about it my dad told me that I'm not allowed out the back because there's rats and mice yeah there's rats as well so where are you supposed to go she can't go anywhere I can't go outside if she is out I'm out watching her supervising all the time I have to go to the tarmac if I'm not if I'm not going I can't if I'm going outside or I have to go to my nan's back your nan's back is the least some way yeah, safe. safe. Yeah. She's enclosed. Yeah, exactly. That's a short example of it. So it could be rats or it could be mice or it could be damp conditions or it could be mould. It could be heating systems that haven't worked in years. One resident said that the heating system since she moved in there never, ever worked. Remember, focus on the point that Cork City Council is the landlord and the landlord always has a responsibility in all of the things that I've outlined. So that was July 24th. I also spoke at the time with William O'Brien, the community activist on behalf of many of the residents of the area. Just want to update with him. William, anything better? Any improvement? Has anything happened? 
Good morning, Neil. Um, there's been some commitments um, from City Council in the last number of weeks. There's been um, a dedicated team sent up to Noonan's Road and St Finbar's Road and uh, Dean Street and Ford Street flats. Um, what residents have got back to me about is that they felt it was a bit late, you know, that it was just done for the sake of things, really. Uh, and this happened and after the walkabout, did it? It did. Uh, the commitments were made by the executives at the time, which would be to do emergency repairs, uh, clear out gardens, uh, take down uh, Japanese knotweed, um, which is harborage for rats, um, and obviously meet with residents and inspect their properties to see if they need a transfer ASAP. Okay, so talk to me about the clearing out of the gardens, because if I remember correctly, one of the issues was overgrown gardens full of rubbish attracting rats. Uh, were those yep. gardens cleaned up? So Dennis Hackett, who's the chairman of St. Finbar's Road Residence Committee, contacted me after three weeks and said, you know, um, Willem, there's no vans up here clearing out the back gardens where um, the chief executive, Anne Doherty, actually walked in and uh, saw everything for herself. So I had to make contact then with... Um, did, he say there the are, did he say there are no vans or there are now vans? Which? So after three weeks, there was no vans. No vans, OK. So, 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 so my I, question is, are they still the same? So they had um, made a clearance of the back gardens because the residence committees got together again and they were frustrated and the false promises were still there um, and they had no trust so they they were actually looking at Neil for a rent review. Um, It's so serious up there Neil that um, we're just trying to prevent anybody getting injured from wheels disease or or any other injuries from you know defective properties so all this is going on while people are trying to live in their their homes Uh, and as you mentioned in the intro there that you know if a private landlord was actually looking after a housing estate like this, you know, it would be on the RTE, it'd be on, you know, it would be highlighted on a human rights issue. Yeah, and well, threshold would, threshold would be on their case, the PRTB would be on their case, they would be substantially fined. Yes, indeed. Were the gar- let me just add, were the gardens cleared out? So the rubbish was taken from some gardens in St. Finbar's Road. But one block in particular where residents contacted me this week and last week around rat infestation, and that's where Sarah lives as well. Um, those gardens are clean, but there's there's a lot of harborage there, which would be Japanese knotweed in gardens that are vacant for two or three years. You know, so people <laughs> would have moved out because those properties would have been condemned and not livable. Um, and those those properties, there was nobody yeah, on the home. They were, they were empty, and then the back gardens were being used as rubbish tips. By whom? Again, no one can ascertain that because uh, things are like, you know, there's a lot of people that are active. Um, Sarah Murphy's dad is active on antisocial behaviour for years, thinking up with community guards. The residents have done everything on their own back on this to keep the community safe. As Amelia mentioned, it, like hiding that people live there. People shouldn't have to do that, Neil. And now would Amelia bring a, cha- bring a friend back from school? You know, so Neil, it's a psychosocial issue for me looking in on it because it's affecting people physically, mentally and emotionally and now financially because they're putting money into their homes and it's defective. So all that's been done since, apart from promises that a few back gardens which were full of rubbish have been cleared. Yes, and uh, pest control has come to a couple of houses, Neil. Uh, you might have been aware that there was one girl had a dead rat in her bed and she, I don't know, she posted to herself we went online and the following day she got support from her social workers to say this house isn't livable, you need to move out. So she went into emergency accommodation um, and Neil, people are vulnerable there because they've never had a relationship with city council. They've always been ignored. So did that rat 
just literally was just walking around, creeping around the house and what have you, got old and died on the bed? No, the dog, the dog jumped the dog up on the bed and killed, the oh, dog, oh, the dog was, killed the rat. It was no. a live rat. The dog killed the rat. Well, she reported that the dog killed the rat inside the house and it, was, it ended up on the bed. You You're know, aware that the, there, you, you know, north of the river, there's a lot of problems similar to south of the river. You're, I mean, yes, indeed. Yeah, and yes, it have been, course, it have been for many, many years. Yes, so what, what's after being highlighted, I suppose, by Donald Keep is that all these maids and F-flats, you know, they're, they're not livable and people are suffering in them, Neil. But would they be so livable if nobody, if people weren't dumping rubbish, whomever they are? Is is that the consequence of dumping rubbish that it attracts those rats? No, Neil. No. Neil, it's nothing to do with rubbish. Look, I, I I spoke to Complete Pest Control yesterday, and they said that if there's one rat, there's more. They're in all of our drains, Neil. Everybody has rats in their drains. But what's wrong with this area, Nunes Road, St. Finbar's Road, and Dean Street and Fourth Street, is that there was no investment there for years, Neil. People know that these flats are ready to be demolished. But presently, people are living in them and they call it a home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I talk to Sarah, if you don't mind? Is that all right with you? Because I know oh, I spoke course, to her some yeah. time ago um, and uh, she, she uh, had a lot to say at the time. Sarah, good morning. Hi, how are you? I was reading, actually, in, in one of the papers this morning, another one of uh, your neighbours um, was talking about the fact that their rats are coming in from the back garden, which is full of rubbish. Uh, they're getting into the flats via the drains, uh, they're in my daughter's bedroom, they're in the walls, they're in the ceilings. They're scratching so bad, not only can they hear them, but the dents in the ceiling is where the rats are sc- scratching, trying to get down. Wouldn't you be petrified yeah. living like that? I am petrified, to be honest. Um, like, if I saw a rat in my house, I wouldn't be there. Do you know, I'd have to, I'd have to leave because I wouldn't be able to stay there. Now, they're outside and there is a neighbour two doors up, like, and she's after catching rats in her house the last couple of days. So I just feel like if they're in her house, how long is it before they're going to come into our house? Do you know? Well, as another neighbour said that her 10-year-old daughter is too afraid to stay in her bedroom that's because me. of... That's me. Is that's that you? Daughter. Because why? Yeah. Why is she too afraid? Oh, if you hear, like, you can hear the scratching. This is constant scratching, 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 scratching. Like, it keeps her awake. I get up most mornings because I've... Um, my baby's 11 weeks old now, but she's on the couch when I get up to feed him, like, because of the scratching. She's terrified. It's terrible. Yeah. What, and what does she say to you? Um, she doesn't... She used to wake me before when I didn't have the baby, like, but now she just kind of doesn't wake me. But, like, she just said, Mom, I can't sleep up in the room because of the noise. Like, even I tear it myself, like, it's... In, it's uh, but Pest Control told me, they called out and they said, they'll put down the bait and he said... He told me to my face, like, it'll probably get rid of him for four or five weeks, he said, but they'll come back again. Why will they come yeah. back? Why will they come back? He said, that's what they do. They just come back. Like, he said, all our flats, like, it's like they're running the whole way through. The whole way t- through. So and, like, it's actually, a, it's a typical rat run. Yeah, exactly. I have emails that I sent back in 2015, 16, 17, 18. They were all ignored, all, all about the mice. Like, I'm there 13 years and it's not one of those years that I didn't have mice in my house. So you can, so if you you can have both rat, rats and mice, can you? Um, well, they say that you can't have rats in the house if there's mice in the house. So that's what they say. But I mean, like, if someone has rats two doors down, and I seen the rat, like, because it was actually my partner had to. We bought a rat trap because I was going up with the child in the pram, and my other child was underneath, and she started screaming. I mean, when I said there was about seven or eight of them. So we bought the rat trap and we, we caught them. We were the ones that caught them then and we're, we're still catching them. 
Was that the big the metal cage that I saw with two yeah, live rats yeah, inside? Yeah, what did you do with those like, rats? So there was some person that um, a neighbour knew that takes them away and puts them. I don't know where he put them. He leaves them off out somewhere safe, anywhere, something like that. Um, they, they, I, they, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be freaking people out, but they were the size of cats. Oh, they were, and you know, like I didn't sleep my, myself for a week. For, I still haven't slept properly because, like, with a new baby, I was like, oh my god, because I know their um, neighbour too. Back down the other side, she was. She had a recording of them climbing up the walls. Like, and, like I don't even leave a window open anymore. And I have that Japanese knotweed. The person living underneath me has that out her back, and that's scrolled up to my kitchen window. So I have. I mean, I know it, I spoke a lot about about rat infestation, and um, you know, and all, you don't know who was dumping all of the rubbish in the uh, disused oh, flats. That was probably dumped the one time that it was. That would have been somebody that was living in the property. And they were vulnerable, kind of. So, like, they were just dumping their rubbish out their back. That was cleared out. Like, there's no rubbish out up in our block. Okay. There's no rubbish there. Okay. There's well, no yeah, rubbish yeah. there. No, because, you know, they say that where, where there's rubbish or where there's waste, that's yeah, what no, will attract them. Yeah, I understand them. that, but yeah. it's not, like, I mean, it's a, clean, it's a clean block. There's not, like, I just don't know. Like, the mice have never went. Like, I was feeding my baby last week, at, and I got up at half past four, and I could hear a noise, and I was like, what is that? Whatever I looked, he's running up my wall. And there's a tiny, I mean, the tiniest little hole. Now you wouldn't even get a pencil in there. And he went up through that hole. But, like, the hole is there because there's pipes for the gas. So you can't block it off, do you know? Well, many people listening to this, my own included, would absolutely freak out if they were sitting inside in the front room and a, and oh, a, and mom, a mouse room. My mum often says to me, like, how are you there? How are you staying inside the house? Now, uh, they do bother me, but, like, I mean, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> but, like, what about, no. you couldn't, there's no way you could keep food out. No, I can't leave a crumb. I can't leave a crumb. Like all our, like all the houses on that block, they, they are spotless. And that was another thing when I rang he, um, a certain person. Is your house clean? I was like, yeah, my house is spotless. You can come up and have a look. Like my house is spotless. You know, like in yeah. other words, like that. They're only going to dirty houses. But pest control told me it's not. Like they just go. You know, it's probably caused by a bit of dirt, but he said they'll go into every house, whether it's clean or dirty. Yeah, enough of those excuses. Thank you very much, says you. I didn't yeah, even touch on the damp cooker. and the mould and the... And the put, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, like, the houses aren't livable. And, like, I pull out my cooker every two to three days. And I, I'm telling you, if I, I send you a picture in a minute, the most droppings that are behind my cooker. You want out, don't you? And everybody oh, yeah. else as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, like, and, 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 I, and I'm speaking for everybody else. Like, it's, it's not fair on anybody living in St. Finbar's Road, Noonan's Road. Like, there's, small, there's people with small kids. Like, I have a 11-week-old baby. Do you know, like, I, for the first, when, when the rats did first, I, I couldn't close my eyes. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I'm afraid to close my eyes. At night time, I was afraid my life to close my eyes. Well, a newborn baby living yeah. living pretty much in the company yeah, of rats and, and potentially and wheels disease. Could, and, yeah. yeah, and a 10-year-old. And like she, she went back to school today. And actually, when I got up this morning, the child was on the couch. So she's having broken sleep. She it's left like the that. bedroom because of the noise, is it? She did. It's, it, oh, yes. And, like, and you know, sometimes I'm like, is it mice? It doesn't. It's so loud. I and the rat is so loud. I'm like, okay. is that mice or is it rat? Okay. Um... Yeah. So are th- things are moving way too slowly then, are they? They are, like, they really are. Like, I mean, like, they're, 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 they were saying, oh, you tell us where you want to go and we'll help you. And then sure, like, when you do that and you pick somewhere where you want to go, oh, that's very popular. Now, there'll be these many people. So have you like, picked a location to move to? I've picked, I've bidded on a couple of locations. Yeah, but sure, like. Are you bidding alongside everybody else, though? 
I am. Yeah, I'm bidding. I bid all the time because I'm on the transfer list anyway, regardless to before this happened, you know. But I thought um, the undertaking from councillors was that everybody would be relocated. Um, oh, yeah. And ideally, so, the complexes would be flattened and rebuilt. Yeah, so, like, obviously, some people, them, the, the complex, like, some of the houses wouldn't be suitable for, you know, people with kids. It wouldn't be. Like, I'm coming from a three-bedroom, so I need a three-bedroom, do you know? Yeah, but I'm, I'm just curious, are they making plans to demolish oh, they're, they're, and rebuild? Yeah, but they're not, like, it's, 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 they're, they're all promises, like, do you know? I like I I emailed when I go back on my emails like I'm looking back on my emails and I'm like they, he completely ignored my emails for years about the mice never once sent out pest control there was another time they chewed through my cooker the back of the cooker and took all the stuff out like I sent him and his excuse was well we can't buy a new cooker and I was like but I'm not asking for a new cooker I'm asking you to send someone out to help you know mm. so the the work that was done just finally with regards to clearing out those Oh, the backs. There, there was one backs. back, I think. That was it. That's, yeah. that's gone. But, but that, that hasn't stopped the rats. Yeah, no, same thing. No. Bath Road still, still isn't fully done, I don't think. Yeah. I think I still think there's rubbish out um, certain backs down there in Bath Road. Okay, okay. And it's, it's just horrible, like. Okay. Thanks for the update, Sarah. Be interested no to see what uh, response we get from Cork City Council. They clearly won't agree that they're dragging their feet. Actually, this morning was the morning when I should have been speaking with the chief executive. Uh, on air and this would have been one of the issues that I would be dealing with in that interview but the planned interview uh, was cancelled because of uh, an unexpected uh, um, meeting that needed to be attended to according to an email that I received on Monday uh, text 0868104106 Call the Neil Prenderville Show now 0818 Red FM. A lot of this, of course, has been pushed by People Power in the Noonan's Road area, um, and that's why this actually led to a walkabout by city officials. And P- People Power can make a big difference. Let me give you another example of this. This side of ten o'clock, we were talking last week about the Before Five Family Centre in Churchfield. Now we we're talking about at least fourteen people employed there, many of them for decades, and then you have uh, spaces for up to a hundred children, and then after-school places for maybe fifty. So you're talking about a fairly substantial amount of children that for many, many decades have been looked after um, at uh, Before Five Family Centre. Now, it uh, sadly, uh, this kind of out-of-the-blue announcement came out that it was just going to close, that it wasn't capable to continue with it. Ted Tynan actually came out with a very simple solution to this in a press release earlier in the week, and he said, words to the effect that the only way that this can be resolved is for the state to take over Before Five Family Centre in Churchfield and look after it and finance it and staff it and keep it affordable and keep it there for the local community, that it is the onus of responsibility of the state. And perhaps his Northside TD should be listening to him when he talks like that. But I just want to chat with Christine Mullen, uh, who's a SIP2 member and room lead who's been working uh, at Before Five for uh, well over a decade, Christine, I think. Isn't that right? Is it 12 years? Hi, Lee. Yes, I'm there 12 years now. Uh, would have been there 12 years for September. Um, I went in originally on a community employment scheme and I worked my way up through then, just like all the rest of the staff up there. We went in through FOSS and all of us there have stayed on there since. Yeah, I know the Red FM newsroom were at the gathering yesterday and I'll play that audio yeah. soon enough. But there was a couple of hundred at least turned out yesterday, right? 
there, there was definitely over 200, I'd say, without a doubt. Um, it was absolutely fantastic turnout. We were so delighted when we saw the turnout and the support that's out there for the centre. And, like, it's mainly for the children. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's we're heartbroken and devastated over them. You know, we were so looking forward to getting back in tomorrow and having the first lot come back tomorrow. And then the, over the next week or so, the other children staggered back uh, in, on different times. In different so no kids will be arriving tomorrow, Christine? No. Okay. No, yeah. It's completely closed, me. There's no getting in. Like, yeah. you know, there wasn't even a lead-in period of a, a month or two no. months for parents to find other uh, um, no. alternatives. No. No, nothing like ourselves last Wednesday when we got a text message to say it was closed. I believe within an hour, the parents also got a text message okay. to inform them. Okay. That the so you're there 12 years. Lillian um, worked there for 28 years. Yes, and there's two other staff members who are there 30, almost 30 years. There's another staff member, 27, Some another one, 22 um, my uh, another one of the staff members, my colleagues, we started together the same day. We're both there 12 years. Um, there's some of the guys there two years, three years, four years. And we also have sea workers, uh, Neil, that yeah. are there as well you, uh, for the last few years. And are you all unemployed now, Christine? We are, yes. Yeah. Technically, yeah, we're all unemployed. It's going into liquidation on Monday from the way things are going. So we're all out of a job. Do you get compensation, redundancy, a payout? No, I need to be honest with you, I, we're, we're still in the process of finding out what's going on there. But as far as I know, I think it will only be just a state redundancy. So, um, as in anything else. Uh, okay, and were you just told by text? Just told by text message at three o'clock. Uh, by text message? There wasn't even a meeting? No, nothing. And then we were invited, once we got the text message to say what was happening, we were then invited to a meeting on the Thursday to meet with the board, which we did. And, you know, we were all upset. Nobody gets them. nobody gets their job taken away from them by text. They just, just exactly. You, you're called to the meeting first. And it's yeah. talked about and it's awful sad and the reasons are... Yeah. But you don't get a text message. No, you don't. You don't. And that's the way it was done, unfortunately. That's the way it was handled and that's the way we were told. Okay. Um, Are there options here to keep this, well, to get it reopened at this stage? I mean, we're hoping, um, like after the um, protest yesterday, we met with some, with our um, two representatives and with some of the representatives and they've seem to think that there's talks going on around the place with some places of you know about coming in and taking over. Now we haven't been told anything as such yet, like, you know, that there is such a place interested or there's not or, you know, you know, whatever is going to happen. But don't you think if that was happening that it would it would have been kept open until the handover? Yeah. Well, we thought so too because we thought like that that was what was going to happen. Neil, like first day that there was somebody in the in ready to go with us, um, and that they were going to open it up on the thirty first, which was tomorrow, and then for some reason that didn't happen. So now obviously they must be looking for other alternatives or whatever. But we were under the impression that there was somebody there. Uh, that the board had got and that they were coming in and they were going to uh, run it for the foreseeable for the foreseeable term. Didn't happen though. They just pulled the plug. What did the 100 plus families do over the past week or 10 days? 
Exactly. They're up to 90, Neil, as you can imagine. Like, you know, it must be the most stressful time for them. They're like, we say up to 100. There is a lot more. Um, there's, you know, they could be up to 60 or 70 between the three uh, preschool classes. You could have, there's 66 within the creche. There's up to 40 within the after school. And then there's a play therapy service, Neil, which is vital in the centre. And there's 30 children that are affected. So I'm counting you 180 know, kids there. You're, yeah, it, they're about like, you know, it's not a small, you know, it's not a small little, you know, one preschool. It's huge. It's actually huge. And it's also, Neil, too, like it's for the community. That's what it was about. There's adult classes that go on there. And a lot of the people that attend the classes, yoga, art, and uh, some of the other ones, some of the people are from the area, and it's their outlet. It's it is, their yeah. Gathering. And, yeah, it is. And another thing I have to say is that this centre, before Five Family Centre, was very affordable. It was within the means of the families to send their children there. If they're to go elsewhere, hopefully that won't yeah. happen, but if they go elsewhere, they're going to find it very expensive. Very, and that, that was the ethos of the Before Five Family Centre. That was the reason that that centre was um, uh, opened first day um, to help the people of the community back in the 70s, which, you know, there was another economical, um, you know, difficulties at the time also, and to help parents who would like to go back to work for a couple of hours a day that there was somewhere affordable that they could send their children. Yeah, it's shameful actually that would happen in the parish of Mick Barry and Cullen Burke and Padraig O'Sullivan and Thomas Gould. They must be mortified that this happened on their watch. They, they probably are, but I have to say, in fairness to them, when we heard on Wednesday, we got, as a staff, we got together, my, our, all my colleagues and I, we got together, we spoke, we said, right, what are we going to do? We didn't leave a go a minute without, you know, coming up with some sort of solution. And each and every member of uh, the, the council or the TDs okay. that we contacted, they were there, and I okay. have to give them credit. Okay, 60 seconds, and I'll come back to the audio after 10, but in 60 seconds, what happens next? Next. Well, we're going to have another uh, protest outside the centre, before five centre, on Wednesday next at 2.30. We would like all anyone, you know, for everybody to come along, but especially the parents of the children who were due to start with us this term and for the children who've been with us already. You know, if all the parents, guardians or anybody belongs to them will come out and support us and, um, you know, hopefully that the government might step up. Now, we have three local government TDs in Cork and uh, they're, you know, we need them now to step up and to come up with a solution and get the centre back open and get these children back in where Three they of the four of them are in power, incidentally, and I know that many of those families did gather yesterday and you're encouraging them to gather again next week. We'll keep a close eye on it next week. If there's any help you need in any way, shape or form, stay in touch, Christine, all right? We will, of course, Neil. We appreciate that. Take care, girl. Take care. Take care. Christine Mullins. I wonder if you're a parent, what did you do? I mean, what alternative arrangements have you come up with? Text 0868 now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. See, all that Boundary Commission stuff means that we'll have four more constituencies in the Republic of Ireland to elect TDs into. I guess the population is growing, so they need more constituencies and they need more TDs. Years ago, we used to have five on the north side and five on the south side, and then sometime back they reduced it don't know why, to four on the north side and four on the south side. That changes again now, uh, and with the changes, we'll have 14 more TDs in the doll taken up space, some would suggest. But anyway, um, be kind, Neil, be kind. It means that Cork North Central will have five TDs and Cork South Central will have five TDs. So we were looking at that this morning, just very briefly, as to 
if you looked at the last election and, um, and and those that didn't get in but nearly got in on the north side and the south side, the extra TD on the north side, if you were to use the you know the the numbers from the, the last general election, the fifth TD would be Ken O'Flynn, the independent. In fact, he got more first preference votes than Mick Barry, who then went on to bounce over him with transfers and get the final seat. So if nothing changed, it would be Ken O'Flynn on the north side. And on the south side, it would be Lorna Bogue of the Green Party. Um, she would be next on the south side because she just missed out last time. However, of course, uh, the dynamics have changed very much since the last general election with regards to um, the popularity of Sinn Féin. So there's a chance that you actually instead could see two Sinn Féin on the north side and two Sinn Féin on the south side. But who knows? But certainly, they'd be moving the chairs around and make more space at the table, an extra TD north side and south side. Can I give a big shout-out, please, um, to a very special... Uh, two very special guys are going to be playing Electric Picnic this weekend. They won't be around uh, from midday today, so I want to wish them all the best of luck because Dylan Brickley and Corey Power, who've played in studio with me on a couple of occasions in the past, they are playing Electric Picnic, the picnic this weekend. I'm delighted for them. They deserve it. They're great talent, and so they should be on these kind of stages. So they're at Electric Picnic on Sunday at 3.30 in the uh, Three for All music stage. So if you're heading there... Pencil that one in, Dylan Brickley and Corey Power, Sunday, 3.30 on the 3 for All Music stage. A uh, lot of texts already this morning with regards to Garda age and tattoos. Age and tattoos are not the problem. The issue is if you're married or have your own house, you are not granted a station close enough to where you live. Also, they get paid less than the minimum wage while they're training, says Kevin. Uh, so for many uh, who possibly would want to join on Gardaí, there are way too many disincentives, he's saying. The idea now is that the minimum age of uh, somebody applying to join the Guards will go from 35 to perhaps up to 50. You were saying, Neil, that men in their 60s are more likely to get married again. Uh, get married again? Not if it was Pamela Anderson. F that marriage lark. I'm separated going on nine years now and living the dream. Tell me how you're living the dream. Text again and elaborate, please. Text 0868104106. On things that you shouldn't throw and, um, you know, people play fetch with the dog. Sometimes it's with a stick. Sometimes it's with one of these plastic contraptions that fires a ball. You can get it in, in pet shops. But sometimes it's just a regular tennis ball. Uh, And there's advice out this morning in this crazy world that we live in. Uh, The golf ball, sorry, the tennis balls are not a good idea. It's bad for their health. I had a sheepdog who loved fetching golf balls. One day, unfortunately, he swallowed it. I dosed him with three big spoons of salt and water and up came the golf ball. A couple of minutes after that, says John and McCroom. Thanks for sharing that. I love it. I mean, I would have always thought that if you were throwing golf balls and dogs were chasing them down, that sooner or later the dog was going to swallow it. On Noonan's Road, so the place is full of rubbish, dumped by whom? Themselves. And it's the council's fault there are rats. Oh, I see. That makes perfect sense. I won't come on because I know I'd get attacked for saying it. Get all the residents to prove that they have wheelie bin subscriptions. Why don't you? There are more like that, incidentally. Neil, who is putting all the rubbish there? It's the residents themselves. There were some vulnerable tenants who lived there, lads, uh, over the years. And some of those vulnerable tenants actually, you know, um, weren't cognizant enough or in, in a psychological situation to know what they should and shouldn't be doing with the rubbish. And unfortunately, uh, they were dumping them in the back gardens. So it's unfair to be blaming the general community there. I can't believe Anne Hardy is still in a job after being on weekly, telling the public that there are no problems with the construction of the event centre. 
Uh, on that basis, I would say good luck to the people of Noonan's Road. Everyone is talking about the council residents on Noonan's Road. What about all those who have mortgages on those, home, on those homes and have no ch- chance of a council transfer? For What are they meant to do? I, I didn't know that that could have been the case in some places where people actually had bought and owned the properties. I moved into my house 37 years ago and I could hear rats scratching at four or five every morning. I lifted up every third floorboard and put down Daz washing powder. I put down plenty of it. Within 48 hours, I can tell you, there was no more rats. Uh, when they're scratching, they're looking for a safe, secure place to nest with their young. Once they found the washing powder, they moved on and I never heard from them again. No rice, no mice, no rats for 40 years. So put down plenty of Daz and that'll do the trick, says Mick in Ballyvalan. Uh, rats and mice, if a population is big enough that the two species cross paths on a regular basis and the food support sources nearby are plentiful, then they will inhabit the same area at the same time. Why don't you ask Michael McGrath or Michal Martin if they'd live in those conditions? How can they allow other people to live like that? Uh, My blood is boiling for the residents. I heard you talking with Sarah. I know her very well. I was there plenty of times and it's absolutely filthy along with the other residents. So please don't be listening to them. Uh, um, A lot of the time, uh, this can be down to residential responsibility. Um, Sarah's house is like, you're right in one regard, Sarah's house is like like a pin. She keeps it so, so clean. But you're making aspirations again against everybody else living there, calling them lazy. Uh, they just want out and they're making everything up. They're not making everything up. We were there with them. Kevin went there. He toured the houses. He was in many of the flats. Come on. How can politicians look people in the face and say modular homes are not suitable for Irish people? Give me a break. The people in Noonan's Road would be damn happy with them, don't you think? A citizen journalist said, send a registered letter to the council demanding insurance liability details. Advise the council um, that they are now on notice, that they are landlords and their insurance carriers will be held responsible for all damage, injury or inconvenience, says a citizen journalist. Uh, There's many more of these. I'll come back to them throughout the course of the morning, but I want to go back to some audio uh, that we gathered uh, yesterday. Parents, staff, um, now at this stage, ex-staff and parents who had children in the before five crash. They've said that they're not going down without a fight. Mick Barry said this could be one of the biggest fights on Lee side since the water charges. So there was hundreds of them yesterday outside the school and there's power in numbers and they were demonstrating and protesting and they're not giving up. So Kelly Murphy from the Red FM newsroom was there as well. Spoke to a lot of staff members, spoke to a lot of the families affected, uh, spoke to Christine Mullins who I was chatting with on the air there a few minutes ago. She sent me back this report. Have a listen. This is yesterday from outside the before five crash uh, in Churchfield. My name is Lee and my daughter was due to start in the Before Five Centre Tuesday week to stay next week. I cried if, if for an hour if not two hours after I heard as we had spent months trying to find a suitable place. We were on a wait list originally for the Before Fives so we had been struggling. We thought we wouldn't have a place for this year to start and then when we got that got the place here it was all perfect and support was set we were set to start we had our room we had our date how long she would be in there for we were thought we were all set it was literally like a dream because everything was perfect my daughter has additional needs so 
finding a suitable placement for her as it is is difficult enough so to have been so lucky with the before fives and then to get such an abrupt text and I would wish you luck in the future broke our hearts we were getting there we had everything sorted all her clothes her school bag all her little lunch box all her mats and stuff her shoes everything ready to go we were trying to get her into the habit of being up each day and getting ready and into a slight bit of a routine for going to school so that it wouldn't be so much of a shock for her when she went and no no we don't know what we're going to do she was born at the start of covid as in the first three weeks into covid so even when i gave birth we were alone in the hospital right up until about a half an hour before she was born and again that has continued for the last two years throughout covid and then that we finally get a chance where she can socialize with other kids get to interact just get to be a child and play and it's it's just after been snatched from underneath us. My name is Christine Mullins. I'm a staff member at the Before Five Family Centre here in Churchfield Hill. We don't have a, tur- a bad turnaround because we love the centre, so the same staff are here all those years, so that should tell a lot, really, of what goes on there. We were told last Wednesday, we all got a text message at 3 o'clock to say that our beloved centre was closing and that they're sorry and that they have... Um, that there was nothing that could be done and that that's they've tried everything but we haven't been we weren't told that like you know uh, we were all in shock and um we tried to have a meeting on thursday with the board and we got no answer so we're still in limbo as to why the actual centre closed. We were under the impression it was being taken over uh, by another uh, centre and that they would keep it going, that the funding was there, everything is there, no fine and chill or any problems like that and that everything would be okay. It's not just a preschool, it's a creche, it's an after school facility, it has a play therapy session, there's over 100 children impacted between the preschools, over 60 with the creche, over 40 with the after school and over 30 children with the play school therapy. So it's affecting everybody the whole way the whole way around. It also provides classes, adult classes, yoga, art. These are going on for over 20 years, if not more. And they're for the people in the community who come and avail of these uh, classes. And it's for them to meet up and talk and, you know, to things as well. We're protesting that new operators can come in and take over and that the staff keep their positions here. That is the main priority because the staff, the before fives isn't the before fives without the staff here. The staff are the reason that most parents continue to send their kids and generations, kids, grandkids down here is because of the staff. My mother and her two brothers would have went, all my cousins would have gone to the after school club. We'd have all went there for generations. I I think I'd have known most people in and out there. I know all the staff out here from just even being in Skullpadropy or because they're such a big part of our community. There's adult classes, textiles classes, um, initiative for employments. There is loads. They have bereavement counselling and Mary that runs the after school club actually goes out on a Friday to meet the families. So they're open, like their after school club can be open till 10 o'clock at night so that parents can go out to work and during the day you have the crash and you have the preschool. It really is a vital part of our community. Christine, the staff here now, what are they all doing this week? They were thinking they were going to be going back to school. What's the plan now? Protest, 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 protest. Get out there, let our voices be heard. Uh, let them know that we're not taking this lying down. We're going to fight for it. We're going to fight for the children. The children are and always have been our priority. They are always our number one. There's families out there now that are stressed 
especially with families with the children with additional needs. They had all their AIMS workers assigned to those children and that was withdrawn for them last week, just like that with nothing now. I really did think it was a hoax. I had read through the message and only for the actually put the Cork City Childcare number to ring. I'd have really thought someone was texting me, winding me up because I couldn't believe it. It has been open for so long that it, it wasn't something we'd ever have imagined. We couldn't have ever thought that it would have closed or that it would have been a possibility that it even might close. They need to step up. They need to take a look at the support today and take a look at what's happening around the country with regards to childcare everywhere. This isn't just a Cork problem. It is around the country nationwide, whether it be ASD units or preschools. Like These are very vital members of our community. These members, they come out and they work day in, day out for our children to make sure our children have a brighter future and the government are just looking at them as if they're second-hand citizens and we just control away and no more people will just come in and take over. Like, staff have been paid €13 euro an hour. That's not a livable wage for anybody in this day and age. So the government needs to wake up and they need to put plans in place and realise that preschool is a fundamental part of early intervention for a lot of kids. We're demented over the fact that we know that those children are ready to come into us. All their aim support workers were put in place. Every was put in place for those children. We had the classroom ready for those children, for all the children, the children with needs and all the other children as well. We were ready to go. Those those parents are, I can imagine the stress they're going through at the moment. There's no places around. Where are they supposed to put their ch- children? These some A lot of these children need to get into their routines as, as, as soon as possible. Like, what, what's going to happen? Nothing. There's nowhere for them to go. So it's not fair enough. It's not fair on the families. It's not fair on the children. They need to get back. They need to get back into a routine and they need to get back in here to the Before Five Family Centre where that structure and everything is put in place for them. It's amazing, actually, when you look and hear stories like that, how money can be fined for some things and can't be found for others. Uh, the state should, Ted Tynan is right, take this over and just run it. They can find, I mean, they can find all sorts of different emergency legislation that's needed when needs be. I mean, they could find mod- modular houses and build them when they couldn't build them 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, we can have a war in Ukraine, for instance, and then we welcome Ukrainian refugees with children and they change legislation so that those Ukrainian families with their children can apply and are given childcare payments. So that money for for all of those things. You know, it's funny about this country, actually. Uh, the longer I live here and the more I experience the stories here, it would seem that children and the elderly are always the most vulnerable and treated the shabbiest uh, when it comes to help in this country, really and truly. It's like as if they're forgotten about. They're the most vulnerable in many different respects uh, and they're treated appallingly all too often. Uh, can I just find out, I just want to get a typical example from the before five as to what parents did, uh, having been given the news that there wouldn't be a place for their child. Donna Cambridge has a three-year-old lad by the name of Jackson who was due to start. When, Donna, was he due to start like today or tomorrow or what? It's tomorrow, Neil. He was meant to start there tomorrow. Um, and as you said, it's just not happening. And the lack of communication is frightening. And you were looking it's forward to that. And I suppose he was also, I know he's only three, but maybe he was a bit excited about the whole plan, was he? Well, that's just this. As I said before, Neil, he's non-verbal right now. But he's, he's he ASD, isn't he? He lives with ASD. Yeah, he, he, is, he has ASD. But he loves routine. He loves like going to school and making new friends and just being with other kids. Um, and one of the reasons that we were aiming for the before fives is due to the staff. You know, the staff have such a high, high accountability okay. over there. Where was Jackson before that? He was in Little Hands, Crash Down in Farnferris. Right. Now, 
Neil, I'm going to throw my hands up here. They have been amazing to Jackson since we found out the news. They've been keeping him on for three hours a day um, just to kind of keep him in some sort of routine. Now, it's not an Ames worker. It's not, he's not in the preschool class or anything like that. But they just don't want to see him with nothing right now. Yeah, I know. I think they told um, me some time back that they would try and help as many as they could. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they have, and oh, oh my God. You were lucky because you, you were lucky you had left. And they, that's, they, they, you know. That's it. I left and I gave up his place. And because his brother still goes there, I just went down and I begged. I said, look, please. And they said, we'll, we'll figure something out. Now, he's not in the class with all his friends that he made the last few years, but he is in a class down there. So unlike other families, thank God, Jackson has three hours a day where he's with other kids. But on the flip side of that, his Ames worker is gone. It's not a proper routine for him because it's not getting up in the morning and going to school with his brother. His brother does that now and Jackson has an absolute fit in the car when we're bringing Tyson into school. Why? Just because I think he sees it unfair because all along he was getting out with his brother and the two of them were running into school together. But now he has to just wait in the car and then come back home with me. He's not in till the evening time, so he gets um, two hours in the evening. And that's only three days a week now because he's actually part of the Rainbow Club in Mahin. Um, and they take him two evenings a week for an hour a day. Yeah, routine's just very important to a lad like him. It really is. Um, it you know, is. And, and look, and he, he, he knew, he knew he the morning to... he could set, his, he could set his, his, you know, he knew what was happening every morning and of course it's taken away from him. And that's it. And you said it there. If the government can find funds for anything, they can pop up module housing. They can fund the Ukrainian war that people are coming in here and they're helping them out. And I do not begrudge anybody because if they need it, I will help. There is absolutely no problem. I love the fact that the government have given them a hand because they are in a war. But Neil, you're right. The kids and the elderly in this country are just treated like not even secondhand citizens below that. Yeah. If, if, nothing, if nothing was happening with regards to anything for Jackson, would you have to stop work then and come... And I couldn't do anything. I could not do anything. If Little Hands didn't give me the little bit of help that they're giving me, I could not do anything because I am, I am now five months pregnant and I am in and out of hospital because I, I am high priority. So it's a case of I couldn't even go to the hospital to get my drips or anything like that because I'd have no childcare. You know, I know. You know what I mean? I'd have nothing. I'd have no support. And the government don't care. The TDs were all there yesterday. Were and you there yesterday? To... I was. Yeah. I was. But the TDs all came yesterday with updates that they've been speaking to this person and speaking to that person and they've got some childcare company to look into it. But we had to wait till they could probably tell people that yesterday. We yeah, did that, not get that, an update. That's just a hope. It's not even, it's not a, it's not a promise. No, it's definitely not a promise. But it, what, what's killing me is the fact that there's no communication. The staff are chasing people to get updates to give to the parents. The parents are chasing people to get updates. Okay, okay. We shouldn't have to. Okay, we'll, it should we'll, come naturally. Okay, we'll stay listening because I'll just see if I can clarify any of these promises or potentially what could be happening in the, in the background. Uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Mick Nugent joins me again. Mick, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Um, any update? Because I know there's some kind of talks going on somewhere with someone. Can you clarify any of that? Well, we had, I just to say, as mentioned, it was fantastic protest yesterday, 200 to 250 uh, people there. So I think the protest yesterday was really giving impetus to the campaign to say before five, 
we met afterwards then the number of the public reps met afterwards with the staff and the SFDU uh, trade union official just to catch up you know so what I said there by a number of the public reps is that there is interest um, from a number of providers uh, Neil um, to varying levels like you know there is that interest there private providers think, is it? Uh, community community child care providers um who are already who are already in the business? Yes, yes, yes. And Tommy Gould, um, I know, has been in touch with Cox City Childcare, and I know Cox City Childcare have been talking to a number of providers as well. Like you know, so, so are, do Cox City, are Cox City Childcare responsible for before five? They will be. They kind of will be the overarching. Um, they're there to support the various community childcare providers. And what are, and like, okay, so if they're responsible for this, what are they saying they're going to do? Well, they're in, they're as well. They're in contact with other providers as well, and um, and as and Tammy Gould mentioned that yesterday as well as others. So there is that level of talk going on, um, but it would need to be formed up, Neil, as okay. well, I think, in the next week or two, you know. So why um, then, if all of this is happening in the background, um, why was it left to the last hour? It's actually way beyond the last hour. It's, it's closed. Um, why wasn't all of this being done in advance of closing it? Well, Neil, from, from our meeting last week, and I know what I mentioned that to you last week, our meeting last week, what we gathered from talking to the staff is, and I think Christine alluded to it as well, there was another provider that was that the board, the outgoing board, let's say, of before five, had been talking to another provider about coming in and assisting the outgoing board to keep before five open. I think that was an advanced stage, Neil, but for some reason, and I haven't got the detail why, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, does anybody know that that fell down at the last minute? Right, okay. So I think that's why at the very, you know, it was so late in the day, then that the staff got a text and the parents and then stakeholders got an email from the outgoing board to say um, case is closing. But there it, had been something there, but it fell down it even, fell and I'm entirely okay. sure why. Okay. So if you look at the board of Before Five Family Centre, none of which I'm in a position to talk to for, for some reason, I don't know. Is it that they just didn't want to do it anymore and resigned as a board? Well, in, the, in their communication with stakeholders, they mentioned a number of reasons why. They mentioned financial, they mentioned change in regulations, making it hard to operate, um, getting staff. That's what they said in the letter to stakeholders, Neil. So that was a level of detail, but not giving a lot more detail. And who funds, than either who than funds this community? This is a community childcare facility. Who funds it? I it comes through various government departments. So why is there a short, why would there be a shortage of money? That's you know that's that's the question. That's the question. That's the question. I'm not sure we've all the detail yet, and I think that it would probably be perhaps be holding on the board, if part, the outgoing board, to give that detail. Now they did say that they tried everything. You know, to be fair, they did say they tried everything. Uh, to make sure that the place would stay open, and they also committed to working with other providers um, to reopen. So it wouldn't have been giving okay, any sort. Right. You know, so I didn't, it, I didn't get a level. Of, I, I didn't get a kind of a level of urgency in that, though. You know. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's quite grey. You know, when you look at it, there's no clear answers. If it was an issue regarding staffing, 
are they talking about the rates of pay are too low for people to want to work? But there was 14 people happily working away there. They weren't complaining about the wages, I believe, and they were getting on with their job. So I don't see how that was a problem. If it's bureaucracy and regulation, are they referencing the HSA, HSC, TUSLA, inspections or something that, you know... Yeah, other, provi- other providers have said that. I, and I know Kate Gaffney in, in Blackpool, you, you may have spoken to Kate before, has, yeah. allude, has alluded to the difficult... And you had a meeting in your house last week. So the whole industry of early education, whether private or community, has said how difficult it is at the moment. And I know Kate, in a post last week, when she was you know, supporting before five, was saying how difficult it is for community childcare providers at the moment because of regulations and tutelar regulations. And, and the inspections and the things that you're obliged yes. to do and fix and correct. And that, yeah, and that you need to have so many staff for children in that ratio. That seems to be what the industry are saying, that it's causing some... So this is a government-funded you know? crash, that uh, government-funded facility that has closed then? Yeah, and I think we need... I think, I, I think Ted Diamond's point is right. There has to be intervention somewhere. You know, there has to be intervention somewhere... From so the TDs, the Colin Burke, Patrick Sullivan, um, certainly Tommy Gould uh, and Mick Barry, all TDs for the north side are up in the doll um, and the, it is government funded, it's state funded. They've allowed it to close without a whimper. Well, and all the TDs were, were there yesterday um, and all in support. But I said, look... Like you, Neil, like everyone, I think to be fair, and I think Christine said everyone's support. The, the communication from the board, the outgoing board before five, came very late in the day and mentioned a number of issues why it was difficult to keep the place open. But I'm not sure we had all necessarily all the detail. But Neil, I think the most important point, you know, I think following yesterday is the campaign. No, no, that is important. But what's equally important yeah. is this is a state-funded facility. Paid for, set up by, and run by, and financed by the Irish state. Yeah, and 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 a centre that was fundraised by the local community over forty up to forty eight years. Just something I think. It's a, I think this is appalling. The fact that it is state run and it is closed. I would say it would be awful if it was private, um, and you could see that maybe they weren't making money or that. It wasn't washing its face, but this is a state-funded one. It's entirely different. It's like, that would be like closing, be, yeah, like, closing a school, there, but, like closing yeah. a school and telling the students to go home. The well, to be funding there, obviously, the, obviously, it would have still have to be viable. But I think there has to be a level of state intervention now to to, okay. to save and to support it. But also, I think as well, keeping the focus on the staff as well, uh, Neil. I think that's important to say that whatever happens here, and hopefully another community uh, provider comes in, that. I, no, I understand that, but it's the st- on, I know, no, I understand that. But right now, where we sit, the staff have been laid off by the state. Laid off by the existing board, I think Neil would be would be the most accurate thing to, to who are say. Fun, who are funded by who? Yeah, who are funded by who? Funding, funding will come through state bodies, but it it is a company as well, uh, Neil. It was, you know, it is a company limited by guarantee that basically has gone insolvent. You know, so there was obviously some some difficulties there with existing board and the existing company that ran um, before five, you know. Okay. Uh, so there's obviously some difficulties there that they've alluded to. Okay. Um, but I think that what's important now is to get another community provider in there as soon as possible. And do you think that's in the very short term that that will be resolved? 
It needs to, it needs to be. It right. needs to be. Okay. It needs to be. All right, Mick, thanks for now. I do appreciate it. Uh, Councillor Mick Nugent, text 0868104106 after these. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818104106. Cork's Red FM. Extra says TDs that turn up at protests are just scavengers looking for a vote. Uh, the TDs that were there yesterday only interested in votes. It's ironic uh, that they are in government, many of them, and yet uh, people rely on them for things they will never deliver on. People just need to stand on their own t- feet without TD scavengers looking for votes. Text 0868104106 on that one. I just want to have a quick word with uh, Avril Keane, who's got care a lot, child care, who says that uh, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Avril, good morning. You make, you make an interesting point about community creches, right, of which Before Five Family Centre is. Are we agreed on that? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. and you say that they open their doors at a loss of eighty grand a year. Is it before they take a child at all? No, not every community centre. Okay. But we had a community manager at the meeting in Oriel House last Sunday night, and he stood up and he said he's opening his doors at a loss. Yeah, but and they genuinely don't know where they're going to come up with that money. You know, as in to make it all right before the end of the year. I feel his so, pain, right? I really and truly do. However, community creches that are backed by government departments and paid for by the state are not there for profit. They're there to provide services for the citizens of Ireland. No government department, no council um, runs under the remit of making a profit. It's what we pay taxes for. Totally understand, totally understand. But they're not going to be operational. It just shows the funding isn't adequate to keep the doors opened. Funding is not. The majority of private providers are borrowing off their husbands, are borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And now it's so apparent with that before five, after closing down. And it really made me mad last week when Thomas School came on after and he was like, oh, there's another service coming in to try and sort it out and open the doors. It's not as easy as that. Absolutely not as easy as that. And they should be above the door and causing absolute chaos for the people that they're in there representing. They're on holidays. They're not back, is it, until... Oh, God, I don't even know. I don't know, sometime in... It's like the 23rd or something of September. September. But at the meeting the other night, I said, our public representatives, we've got them into their position. They should be working for us. They should be up there giving out sync. Like... It's not as easy just to go in. These community services... Why would you have TDs? Why would you have TDs supporting a protest in Churchfield... Um, which is of their making because of their lack of intervention. Lack of intervention, but they're all looking for votes and they'll be coming to our doors and everything. And I but said, are people stupid enough to believe uh, that they've got their back? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm interested in politics. I just think it's just, you know what I mean? Very anyway, listen, right. anyway, we're yeah. back again to staffing yeah. crisis, to recruitment, to the retention of staff because staff don't stay in the sector because the pay is so bad. The pay is so bad. I would love to give my girls more money. I can't because I'm not being funded accordingly or properly. I am meeting the ERO that came in last year. It's in the Labour Joint Court at the moment. And if that comes true that we have to give them another right, I don't know whether I can do that with my staff. So that means then I lose my staff. Then I can't provide the places for the parents. So it's, it's basically, Neil, it's funding and staff retention and recruitment. Okay. Girls okay. are only using the level 5, level 6, level 7, level 8 to go on to become primary school teachers are using it as a stepping stone. Then the department is setting up this group and advisory groups and Pubble and all these inspectors and they're taking all our level 8s. 
they're taking all the degree led like qualified staff into those positions and they're starting at a base rate of 38,000 a year going up to 45,000 I cannot match that. I know. I'm not being given the funding. I'm being given 11 cents an hour to do paperwork from the department per child in my centre. For Christ's sake, you know what I mean? So not only the same things affecting me as a private provider are affecting the community services as well. And this is this is only one of many, Neil, and we have highlighted this to Minister O'Gorman. When I was at the meeting the other night and when one of the TDs said that he has no face in Roderick O'Gorman, that says enough. And when all those councillors said, like Seamus McGrath, in his own words, he said, it's a system that's broken and he didn't realise how bad it was. Yeah, but that's all very well from people who are earning over 100 grand plus and expenses and all sorts of things who really don't have the same kind of worry about affording childcare. You know, it's... Uh, I like, know, it's, it's really sad. Neil, yeah. again yesterday, I had a doctor contact me. She said, I have my baby's name down in your list since like last year how am I coming along in the waiting list and I was like I'll have to check in the office I'm on the floor I said I'll get in there after 6 I'll email you after 6 and I emailed her she's number 57 and how many places have you got? I have got 8 8? yes so like like, she's not coming in no and those on the list who are the top 8 will take the places exactly so I don't know where all the others are going to go alright and it's not getting any better it's getting worse like, there was girls in that room the other night, really emotional. They were crying. There was one girl. She has no staff. She has four weeks left in her pregnancy. She'll have to bring her baby into the office and go in and cover on the floor with her baby. Like, this is loose. Like, this, is, this is just crazy. It's crazy. They so why don't the, the state, fund. why don't the state, um, this might sound insane, though, but why don't the state fund all childcare? Well, is that their plan? Well, you know, I mean, it, okay, you would exist, right? And you, perhaps you would... Be, well, well, literally at the moment, Neil, they're running my business anyway. They're telling me what I can charge. I'm in a fee-free underneath the contracts to roll out all these schemes. So I haven't raised my fees since 2016. Do, can you tell me one thing that's at the same price? You're not allowed to raise them, are you? I'm not allowed to raise them. Raise them. So by me running out the schemes for the department, I have to sign a contract, a legal contract, saying I will not increase my fees. So, so it's I inevitable then that more will struggle and close. Absolutely. We're only seeing it. Three in the last two weeks, private providers, now the before five. Believe me, that's not going to get back on its feet. And if you think it is, it's not going to get back unless there is havoc caused. Okay. And that's why we're going out protesting and that we're going to Linster House on the 26th, Tuesday the 26th. We are closing our services. We are going to cause chaos. We saw it in the COVID pandemic. When, when you say we, there. are you talking about all childcare across all sectors? Private providers, the federation members are all going out and we have over 1,500 federation members. That is going to affect thousands of families okay, over three days. Okay. It's Keep going to cause chaos. And the sad thing about it is, those councillors said, you have to do that. That's the only way that you're going to be heard. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I could be here all day talking about the bumper tax receipts and the amount of money that's being brought in, uh, much more than they had ever expected. Um, it makes no sense, mm-hmm. then, that things like this are allowed to happen. Um, I'll keep a close eye on that so when we get closer to the back end of September. I'll leave it there for now, Avril, though, but thank you so much, Avril Keane, with Care A Lot Child Care. Text 0868104106. Just back to a few texts, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, then, with regards to uh, Noonan's Road. Uh, Sue Cork City Council, they are your landlords. Cases have been won before. They have nothing to lose and all to gain. 
get a solicitor, sue them. They are your landlord. Would it be chipper or waste or odours coming through the sewers pipes that's contributing to the infestation on Noonan's Road and the surrounding area? It could be everything and anything that's in the sewers that um, rats find attractive, to be honest with you. Tell that girl to buy a few plug-in rat ultrasonic repellents. They're cheap and they work. Do they really? I heard that they were just completely and utterly useless. Oh, that's interesting. It's a pity they didn't speak up a few years ago. They're now looking for a new home when, unfortunately, there is a housing crisis. I wonder, could the EU tell the Irish government to build modular homes for the Irish citizens? It's very upsetting to see Irish people being treated so badly in their own country. Uh, I live in the north side. We have rats around the houses. Just last week, somebody dumped 14 bags of rubbish into a hedge next to my house. Pension. Imagine some moron doing something like that. The problem is not the rats, but the filthy people who dump rubbish, who have no respect for the people and environment around them. One of your callers said a vulnerable tenant was doing the dumping. We're all vulnerable, uh, being put at risk from rodents and disease, says Patrick. Thank you for those. Text 0868104106. Back after the break. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prendergill now on 0818-104-106. Red FM. All right, keep those texts coming. I do believe that CAO offers are out today. I hear it in and around 2 o'clock this afternoon. And, of course, there'll be a scramble then as to how many points for whatever course and what you want to do in college and stuff like that. The grades are somewhat inflated and have been for a number of years taking into consider uh, into consideration um, uh, COVID. I think these this year's are inflated by about about 8%. Um, but it's very interesting. So I read a very interesting article regarding uh, the CAO um, being described as nothing more than a lottery. It's by Jennifer Horgan. She's a secondary school teacher at Educate Together in Cork Secondary School, but she also has a column in the Irish Examiner called The Secret Teacher. Well, the secret's out now because we know who she is. Jennifer, good morning. Morning, Neil. Thanks so much for taking the call. You call it a lottery, and I was reading the article with interest because um, some of them are bugbears of mine. Um, you know, the amount of points the student get, and then they're being celebrated. Primarily, you're, you're saying something along the lines of by, by private schools, but you make a point in the article saying that none of this has anything to do with education. It's about class and it's about privilege. What do you mean by that? I suppose I was referring to one of our national papers which led um, the, the news of, of the Leaving Cert with a picture of, of students who had gotten astronomical results. Um, and I suppose I'm referring to the fact that it's the race, the points race is raked, you know, because people, certain people have much more of a chance of getting those high marks because they've got better facilities, they've got the money to pay for grinds, they've got the cultural capital in terms of, you know, their parents probably went to university and so, you know, they have they have the, the, the upper hand from the get-go. So mm. it's an extremely unfair system. Here's, um, my, here's my issue with this though. Even those with huge points like you described who may well be coming from a background of privilege, it doesn't mean that they actually want to know what they want to do with their lives. They equate the points is, with what's available. That is exactly it. So like... It, it, for me, education is about finding out what you enjoy, finding out what you're good at, going with your passions, celebrating your strengths, you know. And, and there are so many young people that are going into these courses with high points because they've been told by the system that this is what success looks like. And I think that the older you get, you realise that actually, you know, doing something you enjoy is absolutely the most important thing, you know. Um, Unfortunately, not everyone gets that, you know. But is I, that I, not nurtured that, enough in in school? Like, for instance, you can have so many points. Somebody will say to a student, "You have enough for law, or psychology, yeah. or medicine, or engineering." None of yeah. those might interest them. Exactly, you know. And the point is as well that I suppose in our system, somebody who let's say does really badly in their English exam, 
might not be able to go on then and do what they really love, which is something in science, let's say. So, you know, we don't celebrate, we don't allow them the kind of freedom and the breathing space at senior cycle to really follow what their passion is. And I think by the age of 16 or 17, young people know the direction they want to go in for the most part. Um, so I think we need to be, to give them much more opportunity at that at that level to really go with those strengths. Um, so what do you do with the student then? That's I'm interested to hear that you say that a 16 or a 17 year old actually knows their career path. Well, not necessarily, but they know what they enjoy and they know what they're good at. Okay. And look, so, for instance, like a student came to me recently and said, "Look, I'm going to I'm going to drop to ordinary level. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy the subject, and I, I I know I want to go on to do a PLC in whatever uh, an apprenticeship." And I was overjoyed for them. So it thumbs up, says you. Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely, I celebrate that because that young person isn't going with the frenzy that is the CAO points race. They're actually reflecting on what do I enjoy doing, what do I find valuing, and you know the dropout rates in our universities are going up and up you know and, and our attendance rates are far bigger than they should be there should be much more um you know plc's further education you know more students should be choosing those routes and they're not because they're being told by our system that you know eight what was it seven one h's that is you know wow that's the pinnacle of success and that's not what it might necessarily is. make you a good doctor though well, that's it. Like, there are plenty of students. I, my husband went to look at the medicine when he was in school and he was told that like, intellectually, academically, he needs to be about a B, maybe a C grade student. Um, he, and, and then we have... Why? The Why? Why? That's it. And we have students now who got 625 points and they're being put into a, a hat, a lottery, to see if they'll actually get their course. Like the whole thing is meaningless. It's it's ridiculous. It's taking away what I'm trying to do in the classroom, which is actually giving young people the space to enjoy a subject, to not use it as a means to an end. Uh, you know, you see students and they're taking down every note and they're, you know, they want to know every strategy to get the most points. That's not learning English literature. That's got nothing to do with what I'm trying to do in the, in, in the classroom. So we need to decouple senior cycle education from the TAO. The universities need to do their work. They can sort who's going to do whatever courses. Leave senior cycle alone. Leave young people. Give them that chance to find their passion. Um, and then, as far as I'm concerned, if we actually diversify the options that we put out there for young people, we won't have this huge, these huge numbers going into university. We'll have, you know, people that want to do apprenticeships, people who are interested in trades, all of those other options. You know, if we, if we actually change our conversation, so it's down to us, it's down to the average person and how they talk about, you know, what success is, what, 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 the, what the it means. The mantra very life. much is, though, uh, that everybody is entitled and should be promised and guaranteed a college place. If, well, yes, if that's what's right for them. But the dropout, the dropout that you reference is that somebody who starts college and drops out after year one, is it, or changes courses or drops out, which? Often after year one, and it's often in the lower, the, the courses that, that they get into for lower points. So it's kind of students who are like, oh, yes, I just got in there to university, so I'm going to go because it's really important to go to university. And actually those students would be much better off probably going down as, 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 as they figure out a year later, going down a different route. So schools need to celebrate the child who says, I want to do. And they do. Plenty of schools do. But there's absolutely far too many schools who don't. Oh, the, don't those schools are saying you have to go the college route. And it, it's almost like ingrained and drilled into the student. Yeah. It's assumed that that's going to be the right thing for them. Um, 
yeah, so it's, it's how we, we need to change the conversation, absolutely. And we need to look at how we're covering the Leaving Cert and this big fanfare over the CEO points and Minister Harris coming out to talk about the. We need to change it. We need to back off, let young people have their space and their time and figure out what they want to do. Yeah. Um, how many offers today? Do you have any idea of the figure? So like 84 like grand? 80 odd thousand. Oh, man. Uh, uh, that's an enormous amount of decisions to be made, isn't it, at that young age? Absolutely, and uh, you know, I just, I just really hope that, that that people are making the decisions that will, you know, bring them happiness and bring them fulfilment, and that's that's what we want, mm. you know, as, just, as educators. Just, just a final one, because you're an educator, obviously, so you'll know. Do you have any thought as, as to whether or not students should take some time out before they decide to do a, a PLC or an apprenticeship or, or go to college, and maybe work for a little bit, or, or even travel for a little bit? You know, just take time oh, out to think I, about it. It's a great option. You know, it'll depend on the students. You know, there are students who are so ready to go straight into university, you know, and that they're, they're, are to go into whatever, you know, into their PLC course or whatever it is that they're ready for. But there are others who could really benefit from a few years out. Each story is different. And, and that's why we need to stop lumping young people into this, this putting them on this one route. You know, everyone has a, has a, a different story, as we all know. Like, so, yeah, I think absolutely for some students, a year out travel, sure, for anyone, I think, who has travelled you learn so much, mm. don't you? Mm. And you learn so much about yourself. Mm. You know, stuff. being in a different environment, it really makes you reflect on who you are and what your values are. So um, I'm a big fan of travel. Okay. Yeah. Listen, leave it there. Delighted to catch up with you because I agree Thank with so you. much of what you're talking about and other people will as well. Breath of fresh air. Thanks, Jennifer. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Neil. Jennifer Horgan from Educate Together, Cork Secondary School, author of the Secret Teacher Column in the Irish Examiner. Having said all of that, with 84,300 CEO offers today, um, to all of you listening to this programme or to your sons or daughters, best of luck with it. Now... Show. Red FM. On the topic of uh, Noonan's Road, there's a lot of dampness in the flats in Noonan's Road. They are not happy with Sean Martin. Uh, give them a new house each. Bring them all down to the new houses built in Maryborough. The people in Noonan's Road are the salt of the earth. And Willie O'Brien, the community activist, is doing great work. So says uh, says Jaron Ardfert. I live in a private housing estate. And if some of my neighbours started using their back gardens as dumping grounds, we would have rats too. Until all residents in Noonan's Road take responsibility for their own rubbish, like we do, uh, there will be rats. Um, I'm quite sure that uh, at least some, if not a lot of the residents in Noonan's Road would be very upset to hear a text like that um, because it's it's like throwing everybody under a bus. Uh, But you are right in the sense that all you need is one person to be dumping, particularly food waste, right? Food waste, rats and mice food waste. There are between 6 and 10 million rats in Ireland, apparently. In the cities, you're never more than one metre away from one. Uh, I live in the country, but I have a Jack Russell, because they are great for keeping mice and rats away. It's so horrible for those people in Noonan's Road. And then with regards to before five, it's plain and simple. Any crash, crash or any childcare facility, this texter is saying, it's plain and simple. If men were the majority of the early years education childcare workforce, if it were men, they would be well paid. This state has always treated women 
and children as dirt. Another one, the closure of the creche is very sad for all the parents, but this is not the government's fault. It's down to the parents. Parents these days want their careers and they want the best of both worlds, but that isn't possible sometimes. One parent might just have to stay at home and mind the children. They're paying so much money out to these creches and are hardly spending any time at home with their children. They need to cop themselves on. Us mothers and grandmothers down through the years had to mind our own children and bring them everywhere with us. Parents need to have one out of working and one at home, whether it's the mother working and the father staying at home or vice versa. It's unfair to blame all of this on the government when it's really the parents' responsibility. Now, I would love to get people's thoughts on that text. I don't know whether that texter actually would like to come on air. I'm quite sure that they were asked. Happy to read the text out. Uh, But saying that a parent needs to stay at home to rear the children, uh, and this is not the government's fault. It's families who don't have a parent at home or at fault. Text 0868104106 on that one. Um, There are many different reasons why parents both work and one of them that's glaringly obvious is the cost of everything particularly if you want to have your own home or you're not on a housing list or you don't have public authority housing even in public authority housing substantial amounts of money are paid in rent by tenants but um, it, it takes mortgages now are based on combined salaries so you take a salary of two people you add them together you multiply it by four and the bank give you that amount you got one parent working right you multiply that by four, you wouldn't get a Ford's box for it. So that's just one reason. There are lots of others, but anyway, your thoughts are welcome. Uh, the lady is under pressure with a three-year-old boy, and now she is five months pregnant. Where is the family planning? Ah, for God's sake, lads, would you let people raise families and be happy and have children? Mother of God. Uh, so parents can go to work. Ha, are you still asleep? Those Muppets in Dublin don't run this country. Europe owns us. Not quite sure what that has to do with whether or not people should go to work. Um... They'll find money for a pay rise for themselves, Neil. Don't you worry. And one or two more. With childcare facilities closing, it has a huge knock-on effect in other areas. After maternity leave, women in general are finding it hard to get their children into creches or childcare. So we're generally, generally the person in the family home and the woman and mother is the one who needs then to stay at home. This is leading to delays in other areas. For example, HSE staff are predominantly women. Childcare staff the same and also school teachers all women it has a domino effect our government is failing us and our children it may not affect them as they're earning six figures but they don't and they don't need to worry about childcare again it's an abuse of females and an abuse of children if the wages are so low in creches why are creche fees so high where's the money going why aren't they profitable if it's insurance then let's address that but if wages are so low why are crash fees so high? Keep them coming. Text 0868104106. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818104106. Red FM. Text 0868104106. There is a great story, a happy story, bouncing off the pages of the newspapers and online this morning. It's in many of the papers, and it's the fabulous story of a young lad by the name of Zach. He's five years old. And he was photographed heading off to his first day of school at Mallow Community National School uh, yesterday. He's gone off to school hand in hand with his sister Jessica and his mam and dad. Uh, sorry, his sister Ellie, I should say, and his mam and dad, uh, Michael and Jessica. Why, why is that extraordinary, you might think? Well, it's because they never thought that this day would arrive uh, so quickly. Yet it has, by virtue of the fact that dad gave his son a kidney. Mam joins me by phone. Jessica, good morning. 
Good morning, Neil. What a great story. Um, and a long time coming, not without its challenges. How's it all working out now? Oh, wow. What a change around we've seen in him since the transplant. He's he's full of energy. He's so much fun to be around. Um, we're just so glad to be here today. Yeah, and this is a lad, Zach, who spent a year and a half on nightly dialysis at home, right? He did, yeah. He went on dialysis for the first time in July um, when it was his third birthday. He spent it in hospital um, getting ready for dialysis. And then, yeah, we brought him home and he spent nearly a year and a half on nightly dialysis. Oh, my God. What a tough, tough start. A lot of it spent in hospitalists. But well, clearly there was a problem with his kidney and uh, the solution was. And what dad or ma'am, for that matter, wouldn't surrender a kidney, right? Oh, 100%. Um, We were lucky enough when we got the results to both be a match for Zach. Um, And then we had the difficult choice of, you know, which one of us is it going to be? But um, I always remember that day that we sat down for the chat and Michael said, look, you've you've had two babies, so it's my turn to do something amazing. And uh, yeah, he volunteered. Um, All went well. Successful transplant. No complications. Did you notice his colour and his pallor and his energy and his appetite? Was there, was there kind of fairly rapid improvements? It was. like I don't know how much you or anyone else would know about renal failure, but when a person has renal failure, their appetite is suppressed. They feel nauseous all the time. Energy can be very low. And there's so many complications that go with it. And um, he had the transplant. Uh, within a few days, he was trying new foods, giving them a bit of a sniff and a lick and just adventuring and, and realizing, you know what, I don't I don't feel nauseous anymore. And he was up and about as much as he could be. And, and now there's no stopping him. I mean, it's incredible, actually, because it, you, you're, you're describing something that was almost an immediate improvement. How and is Zach is old enough to be aware of what went on, isn't he? Um, I'm not sure, like during the transplant process, he, you know, we were up in hospital all the time and he was used to that. He was used to the doctors, the nurses, but that's his norm. He's been going to hospital since he was three weeks old. Um, when he came home and we tried to explain things to him, he's just immediately distracted by, look at my monster truck or look at my car. So I'm not sure he gets it yet. <laughs> but he, does, does he get that he is one of daddy's kid, kidneys? Uh, we've explained it, but I don't know. I think it just goes over his head at the moment. <laughs> oh, there's plenty of time for that in the future. Yeah. What was school day like yesterday? Was it fabulous? Oh, it was so exciting. The kids were up early. Um, they couldn't wait to put on their uniforms. Zach was so proud. He had a few pictures taken. And then he literally just ran straight into the classroom. Barely a look back at me. He was off. He was away playing with the toys. Um, his big sister was there with him as well. She was watching him proudly. It was just a great day to see him come so far and yeah. have a normal start. Yeah. And is there any helicoptering going on now, keeping a close eye on him, you know, as parents do, that always, you know, you've been hoping for the best? Are you gone beyond all of that? Mostly. There are still some things we have to keep an eye on, like with the transplant of a kidney, hydration is really important. So the school have been awesome and helping us, making sure that he gets enough fluids during the day. And then when we come home, making sure he has all his medications and things. But uh, we try and let him just get on with it. We're trying to take a step back and let him be a normal little boy, but uh, just paying attention to some of the important things. Isn't there, isn't um, organ donation so important though? I mean, it you know it was a no brainer for you guys because it worked out within the family. But for the greater community, it's really important, isn't it, to support organ donation? Don't you think? 
Oh, 100%. Like what we've seen in Zach and many of the patients up in Temple Street, um, you just see the change in them. Within a few weeks, they look better, they feel better, whether they're babies or children or adults. Um, it is incredibly important to promote organ donation. Yeah. Um, I know that you're a, a girl from England by birth, um, but but I know that your husband um, is actually from Strasbourg. Michael's from Strasbourg, right? Yes, yeah, he's from France, yeah. But I, I have to say, I, I, I always thought that Strasbourg would be kind of a dull old place because they've got so many European businesses there and government departments there and everything. But I was there about three or four years ago and... I'm sure that East Sussex is nice, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> Strasbourg is the most beautiful city. I mean, it's, isn't it absolutely off the charts gorgeous? It is just picture perfect. It's like um, a postcard, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> it is, and we try and go back as much as possible. Um, it is just beautiful, beautiful weather and food and, yeah, really nice place to visit. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in for the sake of it. But listen, um, Mallow is home now. I bet he was rushing home from school yesterday with all sorts of stories and new friends, right? Oh, he was telling us all about the toys he'd played with, but about halfway he got a bit tired and wanted to go up on his dad's shoulders. And uh, he was very proudly walking home with us yesterday and he couldn't wait to get out of the door again this morning. Yeah. He, he walked off, he gave me a good kiss goodbye and off he went. Fair play to him. There's some research out this morning. I'm going to put you on the spot here before I let you go with regards to the, the school lunches that we give our children and indeed what we ate ourselves when we were kids. What was in Zach and Ellie's school lunch box yesterday? Oh, so Ellie will always have a nice, she loves a ham sandwich, uh, yogurts, fruit. She's a very good eater. A couple of carrots, um, you know, try and keep it healthy. For Zach, he's still learning about food, so he's a little bit more particular. Um, He had a a cheese sandwich today, I think, um, (laughs) just to play with and experience. Has he had had a visit to McDonald's yet? (laughs) (laughs) Funny enough, it was one of the first things that he was bought up in the hospital and they wanted to see, you know, because it's a treat, it's exciting. Um, He had a good sniff and a plate and he does often ask for a cheeseburger. Although he won't eat it yet, A a cheeseburger is high on his list. Happy meal, I would think, wouldn't you, Jessica? Oh, yes. <laughs> Way to go. Something to look forward to then. Good luck to you and Definitely. fair play. Delighted for all of you. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the call. Cheers. No problem. Thanks Jessica, very much. fair play. Jessica and all of the family. What a lovely, lovely family. Isn't just a lovely story, it really is. There's, um, I've just mentioned the lunchbox thing. I can't see that. That print is absolutely tiny from my old eyes. Old school lunchbox favourites. Uh, are now considered outdated. A survey by Amazon found that 89% of parents think their child gets a better quality lunch than they did. Hard-boiled eggs, jam sandwiches, egg sandwiches and packets of raisins are all disappearing from the majority of school lunchboxes. So would you please find out for me, what did they put? I, I got an idea there from Jessica, carrots and things like that yeah. and a bit of fruit and, you know. But, like, uh, what is, like what's the rule of thumb now? Nobody gets a, a jam sandwich anymore? Well, like, I, I, I still think sandwiches are... I think, I I think Ellie got a ham sandwich, but, yeah, but, you know. A ham sandwich and, you know, a, maybe a, a carton of apple juice or something. And away you, you go. You shouldn't give I, kids apple juice, it rots their teeth. Really? It's all well, sugar. It's sure, all sugar. Oh my God. There you go now. My, my teeth are still intact, so I think... Capri Suns were all the rage years Capri ago. Capri Suns were big things. Cheese strings were a big thing. Um, the uh, like I remember when I was younger the big accessory to have in your lunchbox was 
Pringles for a while brought out these boxes and the boxes were shaped like Pringles so they were like a special holder plastic holder for your Pringles oh, so yeah, you'd open yeah. them up put your Pringles into your big Pringle and then put your big Pringle into your lunchbox if, and would that be every day? Uh, well some kids would have it every day that, I was never we were never like we never got cheese strings dairyly dunkums and it was it was a ham sandwich a carton of apple juice and a small penguin and that was it basically that was that was my lunch for primary school as far as I can remember so yeah. you'd never eat, you'd never eat a penguin again now oh god I couldn't pick up a penguin if you asked me you know you're, I'm way older than you um, and, just, and I'm inquiring <laughs> from other people no I mean it happened I think it's twice your age I think um, but I'm wondering what other people actually got when they went to school um, and if you can go way far back along there will be nothing and you go to school and you might actually get a maybe a, a half pint of milk provided by the school and a bit of bread but yeah. In our day, and this would be years ago, I don't know how many people remember Matterson's Paste. It, it was sounds. It already sounds bad. It yeah, sounds it, like in the realm of cod liver oil. Type it, it probably it was. It's a small little glass uh, bottles, tiny little glass jar with a lid on it, right? And it probably was very questionable animal byproducts. <laughs> Made into a pink paste, oh, right? God. Spam, and like the pre. Was this, was this kind of a precursor nah, to spam? Spam, you would cut. This was a paste, oh. Matterson's meat paste. Paste meat. Now I have no idea from what animal or anything. Possibly pork, oh, like a poor man's pate. Very much so, like a poor man's pate. <laughs> day after day after day after day, spread on bread. Spread on bread. I was going to say you didn't just like you know put your finger in and like smear it directly no, on no, your no, teeth. No, 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 I didn't bring the jar. I didn't bring the jar to school. Me <laughs> mammy put the spam on the spam. So there you go. The Madison's paste on the bread and away we went. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing is like we, we, we kind of went, we, when Aldi and Lidl came about, we kind of switched over big time to Aldi and Lidl. Aldi and Lidl. So I had, God like, almighty. When they first arrived in the country, we were getting like we the know, German. We dream about Oh, Aldi we were getting. <laughs> we had no supermarkets. Go on to shops for us, lad. Go to shop. There we go, fishmonger. Anyway, get texting on your own school lunches, lads. Yeah. Text over and, six, just, and also, not just at school lunches, because I'd love to hear, like, myself and Claire uh, were talking there about what you used to have in, like, like we used to always have pencil cases that looked like cans. So she had a LucasAid one, I had one that she's was She's not Coke there. Brand. I wanted to ask I know she's, she's, she's yeah. sorting out a, a few bits there in the back, but um, I'd love to see what things that people like stationery or just things that, like, you know, they're just of a certain era. Like, they, the minute you see one, it just immediately brings you back to the classroom. I'd okay. love to hear what people okay. think. About. I may have time to get through some of that this morning. If not, Mick Mulcahy will pick up on it tomorrow. But that's all very well. Kevin's do other things. I'm, I'm talking about school lunches. Uh, what did you get going to school? And the further back you go on this, the more interesting the food offerings will be. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. Yeah, you might have seen there over the week, last week or so because a lot of press coverage of it on the newspapers and online radio and television of uh, many FDNY firefighters, which would be the Fire Department of New York, who were on Leaside. They were in Cork and they were down in West Cork and they were down around Kinsale. There's a 9-11 memorial garden down there and they were there to visit and also to pay tribute uh, to the many firefighters who died in 9-11 and say thank you to the people, say, of Kinsale and the Greater Cork Community for putting together the Memorial Garden. So it was a lovely story. They also presented a cheque for five grand to the gardens to help with their upkeep. It's a very beautiful and peaceful place. And I'm quite sure the firefighters found it 
very emotional. But I did ask one of them to come and join me in studio this morning and I want to do this because I'll be away for a couple of weeks and I'm happy to say and honoured to say that I have retired firefighter Danny, Danny Manning in studio with me. Danny, good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning. And it was a very poignant journey for you because you were going back also to the old homestead where your dad was from because Inishan and Kinsale aren't too far from each other. As I say, uh, as I've been told many a time, just a few kicks down the road. That's it. Where the, yeah. As the crow flies, you nearly fire, fire a slitter or a ball from one to the other. How, how was that for you, revisiting the old homeland that your dad left? I think he, he first went to the UK, then Canada, and then to America where you were born. C- correct, correct. That's where I met my mother at a dance hall. Uh, my mom's from Tralee. And uh, Kitty O'Sullivan, and uh, they met there, and and the rest is history. Uh, when we were young, we would come back often. Uh, you know, he'd save all his money, my mother saved their money, and every other summer we'd spend on either my father's farm here in Anishannon or my mother's farm in Tralee. Oh my God! It's it was an a great way to story. To, uh, to grow up, yeah. milking the cows and collecting the eggs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if he hadn't done that and gone on his travels, ending up in New York, I wouldn't be talking with you absolutely today. Absolutely not. And you wouldn't have saved lives in nine eleven. Uh, that's true. Also, how do you deal with it? I mean, we're talking about two thousand nine hundred ninety six people who perished during that attack, and the figure for colleagues of yours, of course, um, is is uh, runs into hundreds, doesn't it? Well, right now, let's let's just uh, pause for a second. We all know that the 343 that died on 9-11, and now those are the fellows that are memorialized up in the garden in Ring Finnan. And now, since that time, uh, I believe the number, it's either 349 or 350 have perished and died as a result of the 9-11 diseases that many of the firefighters and other people have come down with since then. Many of those would have been respiratory, I would imagine. Most, a lot of respiratory, a lot of cancers, but I believe I was told by someone we're averaging two fellows a month that are dying from 9-11 related diseases. And and I know... Most of the public wouldn't know that. I I know that you were off duty that morning, weren't you? I was. Like many other uh, firefighters, you got the call to go to work. Well, it didn't exactly happen that way for me, but many, we had what they put out as a general recall, all hands that are available. So what do you, what do you recall of that morning? Well, that morning I was at home with my wife, Mary Ellen, and uh, she was watching the TV, a morning show, and the TV got interrupted with a news flash about a plane hitting the World Trade Center. It was a beautiful, beautiful sunny morning. And I'm looking out the window of our apartment in Manhattan, and I said, gee, it must have been something, a small plane, maybe lost navigation or control. So I'm sitting there, we're looking at it, and then all of a sudden, a second plane comes in and hits the other tower. And I just got up off the couch, and I ran into the uh, room, and I started getting changed. And she says, what what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm going down there because... This is no accident. We're under attack, and they're going to need every hand they can down there to help out. So I just put on a pair of jeans and my fire department shirt, and out the door I went down there like many of us did. As you're going downtown, right, and many of your colleagues are going downtown, the emergency services are going down, um, smoke and dust is coming uptown, and people are running through that in their thousands, right? Thousands, thousands. I was in a car, I ran down to the... Road where outside our apartment, and uh, I flagged down the fellow who was 
coming down with lights and sirens. He worked for emergency management. He was on the phone with his folks, and we got down by the seaport area, and he lost communications with them. Uh, he looked to my right, and uh, the tower had come down at that moment, and those fellows he was talking to were in the building, and that was the end for that communication. Uh, we continued on a little bit into the tunnel that goes underneath the uh, FDR Drive, it's called, up to the World Trade Center, and we couldn't get through because the smoke was coming through. Uh, you just masses of people were running above, and you couldn't go anywhere. The plume of smoke filled the air, and darkness settled on Lower Manhattan. So at that stage, because the buildings had come down, many people had perished at that point. Absolutely. And many of your colleagues had rushed into the building at that point. Your chaplain had rushed into the building first. Correct. Yeah. All of them were in the command center at the time, and... uh, they they were there in the early part, and when they, they got in their engines and they headed, they headed there. Uh, you know, it, those fellows that went into that building, they had, like all of us, if any fire, they always go out is the way we put it. And whether you're in a small fire or a big fire, we put them out, and we we rescue and get whoever we can. Uh, they had no idea these buildings were coming down on top of them. They were going up there uh, as. It was recorded on tape there and said by many afterwards, this fellow, Patty Brown, who's a good friend of mine, he was a lieutenant, and he's heading up in the, out of the lobby with the men. And somebody said to him, Patty, where are you going? You can't go up there, Patty. And he goes, what are you, nuts? That's what we do. That was his quote. And off they went. And he, they, were, they got pretty high up, and they rescued some people, but they never made it down. God. You call him Paddy because that was his name. So either they were of Irish descent, Patrick but, Brown, but his the, name was. Many yeah. in the FDNY would have been of Irish parentage, and just like like thousands of them would be of Irish parentage. A fair amount, yes. Irish, Italian, maybe. Yes, Irish, Italian as well. Good, good part of you know. There's a big, long history in the New York City Fire Department of Irish blood. And it was there in the beginning, and it's still there today. We see many of the iconic photographs, even to this day, an FDNY worker carrying a baby to safety. We also see Father Michael Judge mm-hmm. rushing into... He, he, he was the first into one of the towers, and his job was to console people who were dying. They have him on video praying and trying to comfort people, and he, he had a very worried look on his face. He had never seen anything like but that. But he went, he went, what courage? He, he went in. He, he, his, where he lives and the church is right across the street from the firehouse. It's his local firehouse. The fellows know him. That's where he, his car is kept and he has meals in there with them. He ran across into that firehouse, got in the car with them and went down. He didn't have to, but he felt he needed to be there. And there's an iconic photograph that went around the world. You probably saw this yourself. It went around the world, an iconic photograph of Father Michael being carried. Yes, I only saw it yesterday. He was... Explain, do you talk about it, Danny, the and, uh, and So he's uh, carried by... He's carried by like six people are carrying them from all different yeah. services. One of our friends was a police officer, and uh, he recognized Father Michael. And he said to the other boys, because he was all covered in dust and debris, that she said, that's Father Michael. We can't leave him here. And uh, what they did was they picked him up, they put him in a chair. Somebody took that picture of the men carrying him in the chair. And what they said, what our friend Billy said, let's bring him to the church. And they brought him over to the nearby church and they put him on the steps there. 
And that photograph went around the world. A good friend of mine from Cork here in Blarney, Dave McGilton, who is a musician and songwriter, saw that photograph and wrote a song about Father Michael, The Sky Belongs to Dreamers. From that iconic photograph of him being carried, that Father Michael was just sleeping and was dreaming. Doesn't he look like he's asleep? That's what Dave thought, and that's why he wrote Every the song. Every time I look at it, I think he's asleep. Yeah. Brilliant I, song. And uh, it has a connection to the garden up in Kinsale as well in Ringfenian, because the garden is dedicated to Father Michael. Irish descent. Irish descent. And so the but whole the thing ties you, together. But, but the things that you saw... Um, and the horrific injuries that you witnessed and the people that you saw coming out of it and the people falling earlier from the top of the building and just leaving through, you know, rather preferring to jump than, than burn. How how do you process that now, in, in, like in the last 20-odd years? Well, I often say to people, uh, you know, I signed up for this job. Nobody forced me to. It was my desire to become a firefighter, just like somebody would be to be a, a policeman, a guarder. Uh, or if you join the military, whether you're in the Irish military or the U.S., we sign up for that. So what we saw and what we did that day is part of our job. Uh, yes, but that, my, that devastation is on a completely different level So what here, would be expected to do. So absolutely. Nobody, that devastation. And so what I say to people is that, unfortunately, that day, <clears throat> what happened was that there was women and children and fellows that were working in those buildings, and what they had to witness is something that they should never have to see in their life. We normally see tragedy, unfortunately, uh, but I feel so bad for those people. There was a woman that came rushing to me uh, when I uh, was there, when I first got there, after the first tower came down. She was running, carrying a baby in her arms, and hysterical crying, they were covered in dust and a small infant. And she says, I lost my mother and I lost my other child. So I said, well, but right now we have to protect you and this baby. We have to save this baby. I got them in a, into a car. And I said, tell me what they, your mother and other child looks like. I'll go looking for them. And I searched and searched and never found them. The big mystery to me has always been, did those two people survive the day and night? I know the least the satisfaction was the woman and the infant. I know I got them to safety and took them off to the hospital, but I don't knew whatever happened to the other family members. Mm -hmm. So stuff like that resonates with you. Over the years, you wonder how things like that sorted out, and there are many stories like that. And did you then, for the many weeks afterwards, remain on site uh, for the search of the rubble? Sure. Uh, what happened was... Uh, I had got buried in uh, the second tower coming down. You did? Yeah. Yes. And there was, uh, dove under, we ran, a bunch of us were running, and uh, dove under a truck. We got a lot of debris, came down on us, and uh, I was under a truck and uh, didn't know what was going to be next. Uh, but that's, uh, I said, I'm getting out of here. I said, this isn't going to end here today. As it was, as the second tower was falling. Yeah, you were all, there. all the debris was coming down on us, yeah. So, uh, do you think that was the I'm end? Do you think, there that, and do you think saying, that was I said, Jesus, I said, uh, this not going to end here today. Not not here, not now, not like this. I'm getting out of this. And some people were able to get debris out, and I got me out of there. And uh, it just was a matter of luck which way you ran at that point. Some of us ran left, some of us ran right. And we never saw those fellows again, say. Oh, All the experience colleagues. in the world didn't do any good. It was just a matter of 
which way you ran. So if you'd run the other way, like some did, might not have been the same outcome. So in the in so in the, in the in the days and weeks that passed, then many firefighters were going back into their local precincts without colleagues. Um, oh yeah, because we we never left. We just stayed there. After I got back from the hospital, we went right to the right to the, the more search and rescue. But the problem was there wasn't many people to rescue. Uh, the, originally, anybody we were finding, we just put them in a temporary morgue. But there wasn't many people. The hospitals were waiting for people to be coming. Nobody was coming. Uh, everything was pulverized. The the uh, the sky was just full of dust. It is and, their burial place. And debris. And there was not many people to find, unfortunately. Uh, there was one story that we were involved with, uh, my fire company, uh, Engine 53 and Ladder 43 in Spanish Harlem. Uh, our guys were involved in what's known as the Miracle of Ladder 6, where we actually did find some people. Uh, the guys from my unit went up ahead, and it took us about an hour to get to where these people were trapped. Normally, it would take 10 minutes if on a clear, beautiful day, walking there. And we, because we had to repel and go through debris, but uh, that was one of the good stories that came out of that. And this this woman survived because of the heroic efforts of the firefighters that went and found her. Do you, do you think also because we tend to forget sometimes, and it's wrong if we do forget, but there was also people on airplanes who lost their lives, and the thoughts of what must have been going through their minds. I know they made phone calls to loved ones when they knew that it was. It was inevitable they were going to die. Um, you know, they, 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 had, they, were, they had the foreknowledge that their lives were ending and some of them were, were actually from here in Cork, a mother and daughter from Cork. Mm. It's, 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 it's hard to even comprehend that kind, of, that, that kind of fear that they must have been going through, don't you think, on the plane? I can only imagine how that would have been. It's just unimaginable. They were getting calls from their loved ones and uh, knowing that they were in serious trouble and the brave heroics of those Shoe that that um, attempted to overcome the hijackers. Exactly, and think about that. You know what your destiny is going to be, but you're going and doing it anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a real act of bravery, isn't it? Most unbelievable act of bravery. So, when your colleagues fell and died, 344 of them um, during, uh, and I know that many more afterwards, as you say, through, through the complication, 344. Yeah, no, jump in. Jump Three, in. 343. My apologies. It's the number that's in infamy. I have 344. My, my apologies. Yeah, that's the number in infamy. The FDNY pipes and drums buried every one of them. You attended every funeral. Correct. They made it their, their mission that there was no man. Going to go unpiped, we'd say unpiped, right? They piped at every every funeral or memorial because there wasn't many uh, funerals. A lot of them were memorials because the boys weren't found. They weren't found. Didn't matter. They were every single one, and they didn't put those pipes and drums down until the last memorial. And some days was it over. could have been two or three funerals on the same day, and in two very th- different places. Two or three would be the norm. More than time, many times it was much money. Uh, more funerals that they had to go through. And they just split up into little groups and made sure everybody was covered for the day. Yeah. Not yeah. one went uncovered. Yeah. Fabulous. I think, I think in, in the emergency services in general, and the same can be said here in Ireland, there's unbelievable camaraderie between colleagues, isn't there? It's like there one is. big family. You would not be able to work if you didn't know that I had your back. Oh, terrifically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They... 
that's what you rely on because they're your family. And you know, you're spending as much time with, with the boys in the firehouse as you are with your folks at home. But we, we're all one family. We all look out for each other. And you know if you're in trouble, they're going to come and get you. you know, Didn't it take New York so long to recover from it? I wonder, has it even ever recovered 100%? It, take, it did take a long time. And, but you hope uh, it's been many years now. The anniversary is coming up again. And that's one of the reasons the pipes and drums went to the garden. And uh, But you hope uh, that this, people don't forget and uh, many people that attended that garden the other day, it brought back memories. And New York, you know, it, things move on, as they say, life moves on. But uh, there's many memorials all the time. And why we're a not memorial, let that why stop. a memorial, Danny, in Kinsale? Talk to me about the connection. Well, it was, uh, it was an emergency room nurse named Kathleen Murphy. Yeah. Uh, she worked for over 30 years in Lenox Hill Hospital in the heart of Manhattan. She would tend to many of us after I wound up there a few times myself after fires. And uh, she was so moved by what happened. She was such a friend of the firefighters. She was a very good friend of Father Michael. And she was so moved by it, she planted these 343 trees on her property in honor of the boys and Father Michael out of her own pocket. And uh, it's a beautiful memorial. But she did that because of... of how she felt how 9-11 affected her and all the tragic, tragic loss of lives. By so the was it very emotional then as FDNY? Many um, tears shed. There. To, to go to, go to Kinsale and, and yeah. walk in the garden. I've been there many, many times. Some of the people that were there the other day last Thursday were there for their first time and uh, very emotional. Whether you're a fire department member or not, uh, I've heard stories of people that just visit in Kinsale. They stop into the White House and my friends, the Frawleys, own the White House. Yeah. And there's a connection between the garden and the White House. Because in the White House, it's the home of uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy, U.S. Navy SEAL Medal of Honor winner, who wear my company patch on his sleeve on every mission in Afghanistan. It's a crazy story, but uh, <clears throat> there was a commission. Firefighter who went to Afghanistan, actually. No, no, he, he was a, a in student who left, like many did, to join the service after 9-11 because of 9-11. And he came, his friend Owen worked in my firehouse. He asked him for our company patch to put on his shoulder and for the men going off to Afghanistan. And Are you telling me that's a Kinsale connection then? Exactly. Family from there. His, his mom is, I, I couldn't remember the village right offhand, but his mother's family is from down the road a few kicks as we say right in another village outside of Kinsale so the Irish veterans group followed uh, James Sikora and uh, Declan Hughes named their first post in honor of Michael Murphy who won the medal of honor for his bravery in Afghanistan because his mother is from the nearby village wow and that's in the White House pub right now wow. and restaurant there I did not and, know about him or the Kinsale connection if you go into the, into the, the White Medal House of Honor there, is the highest honor you can get he, there's a movie that's made after that mission called Lone Survivor and if you watch in the movie you'll see him wearing my patch in the movie and outside of New York City this is think about this now for a second there's many memorials to 9-11 all around. They're steel, they're glass, they're stone. Up on that hill there, outside Kinsale, are living trees. It's a living memorial is the way I described it, and I put that on there. And a fellow, Jerry O'Hearn, who's a, he's the uh, a keeper of the garden, as we say. He's a retired Cork City firefighter. 
Him and a lot of volunteers go up there and look after the garden. Uh, it's a living memorial where everything else is glass and steel. And the the big the big deal about it is that uh, everybody is now aware of the garden and we're going to uh, raise fund, more funds. Well, you did. You got five grand for them and gave it to them last and, week. Uh, a, there's a, a website and about the Bring Finn and Garden Remembrance. It's on idonate.ie. And her nephew, John Murphy, is now in charge of seeing the garden over. But what I was getting at was that if you go into the White House pub outside of New York City now, it's probably the largest memorial to 9-11, to the firefighters that died in 9-11. I did not know that. I must visit. It's and called their Holy Heroes. And people go there and leave prayer cards, mass cards, patches. And it's all dedicated to that. And Michael Murphy... Thank you for that story. Comment. Let's encourage people to go. But and here, here's one other last thing about that. Michael Murphy, as his parents said at the commissioning of the post at the White House, was known as the protector. The irony that his family's from Cork here, and the garden oh, up, I, and the garden being there, and the Michael Murphy post being in the village down the town of Kinsale, that he was known as a protector. The irony of that taking place now at the Michael Murphy Post in the garden. Some people say that he's overseeing the fellows in the garden there. I, I buy that. Their patch I buy that. Avenged what happened. To I them. buy that. Great story. Yeah. So you're retired now. I'm retired now. Enjoying that? I am enjoying it. I miss it every day still. But all the young fellows up in El Barrio's Bravest got know me, and uh, our alumni is very strong base. Well, we go around and do charity work and we go around to disaster reliefs so we we're very active still even though we're retired um and i know that there's a, a big match at uh, is it this weekend coming i think isn't it the fighting irish versus the navy i think uh, you, you missed that was that, that last that, weekend they both sailed uh, who won uh, notre dame won handily oh, god dang it man. They, they won handily yeah it was wasn't much of a match but it was a great turnout over forty thousand people came to this country for that oh man so listen have a great night's sleep um in your father's family home i'm with my, my cousin noreen manning will be sleeping in uh in the house tonight and we'll be going off to bandon where my family is from as well for dinner and then back into Ginsale tomorrow. Can I play a couple of bars? I won't be able to play at all. This is Dave McGilton's The Sky Belongs to Dreamers. Is this written for Father Michael? This is written about Father Michael being carried in that chair. Okay. That's, this is Dave's vision. Dan, Danny, it's lovely to meet you. It really is an My honor. Pleasure. My and pleasure. Thank you for coming in this morning and My do look pleasure. after yourself. Up Cork.
What's the sound I'm hearing? Ring that bell of freedom Louder than the drums of war What's the sound I'm hearing? Ring that bell of freedom Louder than the drums of war Shed a tear for days gone by For all the world a different time When the sky belonged to dreamers Michael, I would like to laugh I've seen a different photograph Of a man who knows that love will last And death will be What's the sound I'm hearing? Ring that bell of freedom Louder than the drums of war What's the sound I'm hearing? Ring that bell of freedom Louder than the drums of war. It's Dave uh, McGilton's song, The Sky Belongs to Dreamers, in honour of the late uh, Father Michael Judge. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honour talking with uh, Danny Manning in studio. In fact, some people say, well, great to hear him. Nice conversation. Well done. Wonderful coverage. We're going to New York on Friday. We're visiting the 9-11 Museum on Sunday, then going to O'Hara's for lunch and then on to the New World Trade Centre. God bless all, says the Kennedy family from Whitegrate. Uh, morning, Neil. It still sends shivers through my body listening to that retired firefighter, Danny, talking about 9-11. I was working in New York at the time and watched the first building fall with my own eyes. Very sad day, uh, says Alan. Thank you for those. Uh, I'm out of time, guys. I'd have to love you and leave you. Mick Mulcahy is in tomorrow for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm quite sure he'll pick up on a lot of the business that I've been doing over the last few days. Anything else uh, will wait until my return. Look after yourselves and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.